looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles who protect everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're talking about the ups and downs and just insane history of the great Mickey Rourke. And who better to have this conversation than producer Adam Howard, who was last on this podcast about half a year ago, talking about the career of Spike Lee. But Mr. Howard, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I told this story last time, and I'm going to tell it again just to embarrass you a bit, but (laughs) you and I met at a Kevin Geeks Out when you just mopped the floor with your presentation about Lawrence Tierney, and a buddy of mine was just absolutely terrified that I was going to have to go up next. And luckily, there was a buffer between your your (laughs) speech and mine, but it was an absolutely fascinating presentation. But when you're not talking about Lawrence Tierney, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> well, thank you for that compliment. That was really nice of you. Uh, yeah, so I'm a, a senior associate producer at the Full Frontal with Samantha B Show. Um, if anyone's unfamiliar, it's a late night show that airs on TBS, and we do a lot of sort of incendiary political commentary, commentary some silly stuff too, sort of in the, the vein of The Daily Show. Um, and I worked on the show, I work in the show's field department, which are sort of the interview portions of the show that are filmed in places all over the country and in some cases all over the world. Um, and we're just coming off of a big uh, not for White House correspondence dinner, which is sort of our answer to the traditional correspondence dinner. It just aired on Saturday. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's a wild ride. <laughs> Um, the next year and a half is going to be considerably wilder. I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not looking forward to it. It's weird because I, I was a journalist for 13 years before I came on the show, and covering elections as a journalist was could be really exciting and also extremely exasperating. And I think this is going to be just really unusual covering an election like this from a comedic perspective. I mean, there's certainly enough people running, so I can't imagine abundant that, material. Yeah, and I mean. There are characters. I mean, Biden is a character. Bernie is a character. Obviously, Donald Trump is the biggest character. Um, so yeah, it's going to be. It's there's there and there's so many shows like ours, and we're all kind of competing for viewers and and trying to kind of carve out our own little comedic space. So it's it's an interesting challenge, but it'll be a good one. I think um, it'll be really exhausting, but I think it'll probably be a good time for our show. But I feel like some journalists wish every day was election day. They right. just they totally thrive on it. They get high on it and they just run on pure adrenaline and even though you can see they're aging in dog years before your eyes. <laughs> do you get that stimulation or are you kind of like <sighs> Here we go. Um, I, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty intensely partisan person. So I think when, you know, I'll put it this way, sort of like the 2008 election was really fun for me because things sort of went the way I wanted them to go. And so, um, you know, I remember things from that election and it being just kind of crazy and exciting and time. fun. Right. So like the, when the Sarah Palin interview with Katie Couric happened, that is like a very vivid memory to me because it was just this sort of insane thing and it felt like real crazy news was happening in real time just every moment that woman opened her mouth um and then 2012 was sort of like a little bit less interesting especially when some of like the crazier candidates got out of it um and then yeah 2016 i mean i think we're all still reeling from it even if you are happy with the result i think you're probably still kind of in shock it's definitely i, one I of think the everyone's things. shocked including the president himself right right and it's and it's i think it's just I, I, I definitely periodically just have moments where I'm like, I can't believe that this is happening. I mean, if you were to have gone, like, say you went into a coma, you know, 
even three years ago and woke up and somebody told you, you know, Bill Cosby's in jail for multiple sexual assaults. You know, Donald Trump is president of the United States. Um, you know, I think people would be kind of like, uh-huh, yeah. Like, it's like Back to the Future. It's like, who's the president from where you come? He's like, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. It's like, what? The actor? Yeah. Who's the vice president? Yeah. Jerry Lewis? Like, <laughs> I feel like we're in the dark timeline of Back to the Future 2 a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely been a very cool life experience and and i'm just kind of enjoying the ride while i can and until it comes to an end eventually um so yeah that's what i do and then in addition to that i i write uh mostly about pop culture stuff for the daily beast for playboy um i just write for my own amusement um i do a lot of art stuff on the side i draw uh art posters sort of in like the the traditional style sort of hand-drawn stuff um, so I, I've done, you know, thousands of those and, and that's a huge hobby of mine. And I'm just a huge movie buff, just like you. And uh, Mickey Rourke, who's, I guess, the topic of today's show, has always been a favorite actor of mine. And he's also somebody I feel compelled to have to defend because he's made a lot of bad choices. Oh, he's a total maniac, <laughs> but he's brilliant. Right. But I have to <laughs> press pause real quick yeah, just sure. because uh, you gave me a beautiful opportunity for some bragging rights over Christmas. It was the day after. I've, I have a lot of brothers and sisters, tons of nieces and nephews, and we're all hanging out watching uh, Die Hard. Sure. And there was some debate going on. And at one point, I decided to make a point, and I was like, oh, and also, by the way, who has been quoted in Playboy talking about this precise movie? So thanks to you, yeah, I yeah. got to have a little leverage or advantage in that debate amongst my very opinionated siblings. Yeah, I mean, not to derail the conversation, but I think it's strange that people feel so strongly that they don't want Die Hard to be considered a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's like, like, who not, cares either way? I don't know what, what that detracts from that movie to say it's a Christmas movie. It, it doesn't make it any less cool. It's not going to be any less violent. Um to me, it seems like it's an, it's like the debate over whether or not Harrison Ford is a replicant in Blade Runner. It's sort of, to me, it seems like a closed case. But if you feel differently, like that's cool. But I don't think there's like an opinion that's unvalid. How dare you suggest that people can have different points of view <laughs> right, on right. particular topics? That is not the era in which we live on. It's that's, that's forced true. conformity on yeah. all things. Yeah. yeah, it is bizarre just how it's like people will fight to the death over the most trivial thing imaginable. <laughs> and in particular, pop culture, like today with them, um, I've been looking at my uh, reactions to my review of last night's Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. which I thoroughly enjoyed, yeah. but it never even would have occurred to me that it would be something worth arguing over or fighting over or like that it might lead to like cancel culture, be like, I'm unsubscribing, how right. dare you? I'm like, God damn, like it's just a show, everybody, take a chill pill. Yeah, I, I <laughs> guess like, and, and I might be like an, a weird viewer because I tend to, I try not to go in with a result that I want to happen because then it's, it's easier for me not to be disappointed, I guess. And the folks I know who are really unhappy with that show or, or how it's going, they have this preconceived notion in their mind in terms of how they think it should pan out. And I just feel like this is not for you. It's not made by you. And so it's out of your hands to a certain extent. Um, I just saw the new Avengers movie last night and also enjoyed that. But Similarly, there, there's characters I like that I would would have liked to see live on. There's some that I'm okay with passing on. Not everything happened the way I necessarily would have wanted it to happen, but I also understand it's not my vision. Yeah, and like so. review the movie that exists, not the movie that you want to see. But also, yeah. like when people have opinions that are that strong, write a write a novel, write a screenplay, right. make a movie. Like when I I used to listen to a lot of podcasts before Wrong Real, where I was mm-hmm. constantly kind of beating my fist on the table, like you're such an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. And finally, I just realized. Why don't I just start a podcast and then I can just have a healthy outlet for all yeah, those yeah, emotions? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, let's dig into Mickey Rourke because this guy, I probably <laughs> he 
first popped on my radar when I was a teenager and I saw Angel Heart and I was just completely, totally floored. Mm-hmm. And I still think it's one of the most underrated movies of that decade. And for people who like horror and erotica combined, it is one of the best examples of its era and I have a really unusual role for Robert De Niro. And then as I got older and I started getting into movies, I started kind of picking and choosing different films from his career, like Diner, obviously, which is a, an essential early classic. And then I got to see the whole resurrection with movies like Sin City. But when did he first pop up on your radar as uh, such an interesting dynamic figure? That's a really good question. It, it it's, well, it's a couple of different random inflection points because with Mickey Rourke, there's so many different chapters of his career. There's so many little side streets with the boxing and the plastic surgery that you can go down. I think, weirdly enough, the first time I remember noticing him was in a really small part in a couple of different movies. Um, And this was during sort of a really fallow period for him, sort of like late 90s into the early 2000s. So um, I was a big fan of the Vincent Gallo movie, Buffalo 66. And he had a single scene in that movie. And it was like a, a random throwaway scene. But I thought he's there was something about his energy that I thought was really interesting. And I remember around that time, Vincent Gallo gave a bunch of interviews kind of talking up Mickey Rourke. And, you know, obviously Vincent Gallo was sort of a, at that time kind of an insane quote machine. And he would just say a lot of things that were problematic. But basically, he was kind of stacking Mickey Rourke against some of the other kind of big name. No, I remember um, the interview on the DVD when he said oh, sure. Sean Penn wishes he could be Mickey right, Rourke. Right, exactly. So it was that kind of thing. And I remember thinking like, huh, I, I, I knew the name. But I wasn't really familiar with his work, and I thought, wow, this guy must be special if all of these sort of cool indie actors are kind of holding him up on this pedestal. And then around that same time, I later saw The Pledge, uh, the the Sean Penn movie, and Mickey Rourke has a single scene in that movie where he plays um, a grieving father. And he has this one scene opposite Jack Nicholson where he just has sort of this emotional breakdown. And it was so uh, raw and upsetting in such a way that I felt as if I was watching a real moment happening with a person, like a real, you know, almost like something I shouldn't be seeing. It was so vulnerable, uh, vulnerable, exactly. And, and, and to me, that's kind of the magic of his persona. And the only other person I can think of who has this same kind of energy is Brando, where it's a person who, who reads as hyper-masculine, um, certainly has that energy, but also has this sort of intense vulnerability that almost verges on the side of what people perceive to be femininity, where, you know, he's quick to cry, he's quick to show sort of um, like a softer, gentler side. And in in the best actors, I think they, they have that ability to channel both. But it's incredibly rare it's yeah. a, to find that overlap. You've got you know, like your Charlton Heston's on one side of the spectrum, and then you've got your... I guess who's someone who's just like completely naked, raw emotion. I don't know. Say like say Philip Seymour Hoffman right, or something right. like that. But very rarely do you have this two <laughs> polar opposites kind of emerge yeah. in one single I don't being. Think Char- I don't. I can't imagine Charlton Heston has ever cried in a movie. But if he did, I imagine it's sort of like a pseudo growl. Yeah, like, it, it wouldn't be as convincing as that scene in the pledge. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And so I just remembered thinking like, this guy's interesting. I need to do a deeper dive and. And then uh, I was, I'm a l- I think I'm a little younger than you. So Sin City, when that came out, at that point, I was sort of like, okay, I really want to see like this guy, like what his deal is. I think it, I might have like gone and found Angel Heart and, and, and gotten into that. And, and I think that was probably a gateway for me with him. Um, I, thought, I saw Rumblefish in high school because uh, like a film professor I had showed it to us. And I was really blown away by that movie. 
Um, and so then when Sin City came out, for me, that was sort of this homecoming with him where I was like, yes, he is like this great actor that was promised, essentially. And there was a lot of fanfare around him and his performance in that movie, which I think is great. And then again, there was this fallow period for about three years where it seemed like he just disappeared again. Um, and then it all came full circle with The Wrestler, which I just adore. It was one of my favorite movies of that year, that decade. And I think a lot of folks thought, okay, like finally Mickey Rourke is going to have the career that he should have had. And I guess part of the reason I pitched this to you is I have been just sort of flummoxed and stunned by the disappearing act he's pulled pretty much in the last 10 years. Like he, But you mentioned having to defend him. Yeah. Who are these schmucks you're hanging out with who are attacking <laughs> Mickey Rourke's integri- integrity? Oh, I don't think it's so much even that as like, I think... Or just snarky comments about his personal life? There's that, and I think he's, he's a person who, unfortunately, the off-screen eccentricities are front of mind for a lot of folks. I mean, I'm, I don't know if you were a fan. I was a fan of 30 Rock. It was literally like a running joke on the show about all these crazy things that Mickey Rourke was supposedly doing to Jane Krakowski's character. And they're funny because it's like, he he is this sort of TMZ fixture. He is sort of, he's got the parrots and the dogs and the, the crazy <laughs> plastic surgery that is sort of like, it seems like sometimes he, he like course corrects and I'll see a photo where I'm like, okay, like he's obviously not as handsome as he used to be, but he almost looks like old Mickey Rourke. But then I'll see another photo and he looks w- horrible again. And I'm, I'm not sure what's going on there. Some kind of body dysmorphic thing. Um, no, sometimes his face looks like somebody broke a vase and like shook up the pieces <laughs> like in a bag. And right, you're trying to right. just kind of reassemble things. And, and like, it just looks like he's melting. Right. And I don't want to armchair psychoanalyze him. But obviously, again, the Brando comparison to me is apt because they're both men who seem to have a very like open public discomfort with the fact that they were these sex symbols, like that somehow they felt like that detracted from their, their craft or their masculinity or whatever. And they didn't like that. They were these sort of, you know, pretty boy sex symbols and they seemed to do things deliberately to destroy that image. And I mean, literally with Brando, the weight and with Mickey Rourke, his, his yeah, face Brando would just eat tubs of ice cream. Yeah. And it's, Mickey and Rourke it's, was like, fuck it, maybe a pro boxer for three years. Right. <laughs> and I think in both cases, it's, it's sort of a tragedy of missed opportunities because you have in both cases, sort of a handful of maybe six or seven, just unassailably masterful performances. And then this rest of this career where it's like phoning things in or just kind of giving like a silly half hearted performance or whatever. And then with Mickey Rourke's, case it's like the direct-to-dvd hell that i think a lot of really good actors find themselves in i just a few months ago read a really great profile about eric roberts who's another actor who i think um is so ripe for rediscovery and deserves to have more work in so-called legit movies right and eric roberts like apparently turns out like dozens and dozens of movies a year that probably you and i will never see and it's it's just a shame because i feel like they they still, I think, have good performances in them. I think in Mickey's case, it seems like he's his own worst enemy. You definitely hear a lot of stories about him being difficult, being sort of lazy. I mean, when The Wrestler came out, Darren Aronofsky certainly alluded to sort of a love-hate relationship with Mickey. Same with Alan Parker. Right, where it's like, you know, getting him to the set was like a struggle. Getting, I remember listening to some interview with Darren Aronofsky where just getting him to take off his sunglasses was like a project because he you know, was self-conscious or whatever. And then obviously, especially on that film, once he was willing to kind of dig deep, you know, you get this sort of incredibly emotional raw performance. 
um, that I wished and believe should have won the Academy Award. And who knows if that had happened, if, if his whole trajectory would have changed. But basically, after this like brief moment where he was able to capitalize with The Expendables and Iron Man 2, I feel like he has basically disappeared. And I periodically as a fan I, I go digging to see you know if he has any projects that are even a little bit legit coming up and there never seems to be the case he's got exhibition boxing matches in russia that you can right enjoy. And, and that's the thing yeah he goes <laughs> back 62. to that and when that was the part when that was the moment where i thought like maybe he is truly lost to us when he started wrestling again and boxing again and obviously he's in tremendous shape for a man his age even though and i don't know if you came in ran into this but i've always been fascinated by the fact that there doesn't seem to be any clear delineation on how old he is like there's all sorts of interesting i, I didn't know different any ages yeah like i mean imdb has one number and a different site has a different number so he's either like 66 or 62 depending on he's always been older than because i read played. he was 62 during the boxing match during, oh okay during so, the accident, which was like six seven years ago yeah so. either way like yeah. impressive i mean he's like physically still kind of fit and i guess but he's not bernard hopkins who like at age 50 <laughs> looks like he was carved out of marble right <laughs> and, he, and i mean as a boxer i think he's probably better than you or i he was like a serviceable guy i mean he's certainly not gonna win any belts anytime soon so I don't know what it's about. I don't know if it's just him needing to kind of prove that he could actually really be in the arena and be this masculine ideal that I think he tries to reach for in a lot of his performances. I remember when Iron Man 2, around the time Iron Man 2 came out, it was one of those like Oscar roundtables and uh, he was nominated for The Wrestler and Robert Downey Jr. was nominated for Tropic Thunder and Robert Downey Jr. was like lavishing Mickey Rourke with praise and talking about how his performance in nine and a half weeks was sort of, maybe you can find the clip somewhere, but sort of his kind of masculine ideal. And I just thought like for somebody who was as big as, as Robert Downey Jr. was to kind of be like, you were the guy that I wanted to be. And to say that like on camera and say, and I remember in the similar round table, Brad Pitt said the same thing of like, when I was coming up, it was Gary Oldman and, you basically and Sean Penn basically were like the linchpins and for whatever reason I think it's just some bad choices and some films that were great that didn't get seen um he's just never been given the same respect that those guys have been given I think you'll find people who will say yeah like he was good in the wrestler and I know he used to be attractive like I think that's the general I mean, in the early 80s he was an angel I mean he was like right, beautiful right, in appearance right. I mean it's almost when you watch something like Diner like good yeah, yeah. God. like what, what I mean like yeah. you were gonna make a straight man gay here like any second <laughs> And he had like, and he had the charisma to go with it. I mean, as you well know, there's a long history in Hollywood of, of sort of, you know, tab hunter types like these pretty faces where there's no real substance behind them. But I think he both had the tools and the talent and the charisma. I think Pauline Kael wrote about that when she reviewed Diner that like he's going to be a huge movie star, and just for some reason that career never really materialized. And um, and then he made this choice to go into boxing and almost at the exact moment where I feel like things could have turned for him. I mean, we can get into this later, but he could have found another gear and had a, just yeah. a whole new golden age. Right. Right. I mean, and to me, the been biggest working with like Brian De Palma and all these right, guys who exactly. were at the top of their game at that yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like for me, when I look at it, I, I, I oftentimes can be a little snarky and condescending about actors because I feel like so many of them are always reaching for some sense of authenticity that mm -hmm. they will never grasp because actors are, in a lot of cases, they're chameleons and they sure. seek approval and they're they're insecure and they're just, there's a reason why they're as interesting on, on camera as they, as they are. And But when I see guys like, 
you know, Shia LaBeouf trying <laughs> to build some sort of mystique around. I'm right. like, no, you're about as mysterious as like an apple. Like, yeah, like yeah. Mickey Rourke is genuinely mysterious and his self-destructive tendencies make them all the more mysterious and fascinating. Right. To me. Like when I think about rock stars, I want to learn about rock stars who are, you know, throwing themselves out windows and shooting heroin in their eyeballs. I, I want the deranged madmen who are completely unmanageable, almost right. like, you know, if you're going to work with them, it's like, I feel like Coppola is probably like a great lion tamer. He knows how mm-hmm. to almost kind of conquer and rally these actors to get the best out of them. And I imagine Ricky Ork probably enjoys the challenge of seeing almost in a kind of a petulant way. Can I, create an environment where the director is forced to rise to the challenge yeah. to conquer this wild animal yeah. and get the best out of me, which can almost lead you into the, like becoming like almost like a like guilty of like self parody. Right. But I feel like the truly great directors are up to the challenge. Well, there's so many interesting things that you just brought up. I mean, first of all, he has an incredible track record in terms of some of the directors that he's worked with, um, Hell yeah, I mean, which obviously we can get into, but also, um, Again, I, I hate to keep making a comparison, but you really made me think of Brando because I remember a famous Sidney Lumet quote where he said, you know, Brando will test you basically. And if he thinks that you're legit, he'll give you a real performance. And if he thinks that you're not, he'll steamroll over you and just do whatever he wants. And I think Island that's... Island of Dr. Moreau, baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect example. And I think clearly that's the case with him. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think so much of this is sort of like knowing what your strengths are and knowing your lane. I mean, it's one of the reasons I really, I like George Clooney as an actor because he's a great movie star and he's a good actor. But I remember he gave an interview where he was like, look, I'm, I'm not a method guy. I'm not going to become the person like, you know, and I think Paul Newman was one of those people where it's like, I'm a movie star. You put me in a role. I'm going to give you like a great Paul Newman performance. And I think Mickey Rourke was someone who's like, you're going to get a lot of intensity, a lot of physicality. You're going to get like a very kind of like, brute sexuality or whatever and and a lot of co-stars might not like that i mean a lot of directors might find that hard to uh reconcile with but it's interesting that you brought up coppola because coppola uh really adored him and they really seem to have a good he's one of the few directors that he, and he seems kept bringing to have. them back like the rainmaker. yeah the rainmaker exactly yeah. and, and i remember when i got the dvd for rumblefish and listened to the commentary like he had nothing but good things to say about mickey and he was he was talking about how apparently throughout the whole shoot mickey had like a something in his pocket that he would hold on to some kind of talisman that he would touch and it would just like bring back certain me- uh, method memories for him because uh, Mickey Rourke was very much of that school the the actor studio school of Harvey Keitel and a lot of other greats came through there um, and he very much worked that way of like needing an object or needing some kind of uh, real memories to draw from and I think that can be really exhausting for some directors you know I'm sure maybe you saw the the documentary about uh, the making of Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey, where you know he gave me those foreman fits by being so kind of over the top pretentious about the role, um, but at the same time, you know some of Al Pacino's, for instance, like best performances were him being just super method, and you know they'll say like on the set of like Dog Day he was just like incredibly depressed and like you know, but of course that's like a magic performance, and I feel the same way about. Pope of Greenwich Village or Rumblefish or Diner or Body Heat, like these early performances, um, he was so in the pocket. And then I just feel like somehow he lost his way and I keep wanting him to get it back. But again, I'm I'm becoming increasingly convinced that maybe the best thing to do is just enjoy the, the work that was good. I mean, the work that exists. Sure 
is the envy of just about every actor of the last 40 years. Right. Most actors would give their eye teeth to be able to say, oh, I worked with Michael Cimino, and I worked with Barry Levinson, and I worked with Francis Ford Coppola, and I worked with all these great luminaries. So, yeah, I mean, it, the work speaks for itself. And I revisited a lot of these movies in preparation for this episode, mm -hmm. and I was completely, utterly floored by so many of them because I, I'm often in a state of in a, a complete, total movie burnout where I watch so many for all these different episodes where I can't even see the movies anymore. They kind of just like disappear into pixels on the screen. Right. But with movies like Year of the Dragon, I was like sitting back on the couch with like a bag of like potato chips, like just eating and enjoying and just like having a, like a fun movie experience mm -hmm. and just enjoying it as, an, as a viewer and not taking notes and not obsessively thinking about it. And I, like halfway through, I was like, oh my God, I'm having the fucking time of my life. And I, I just got, to, I was able to just lose myself in the story, mm -hmm. which is a very rare, precious thing for me that I'm always looking for. And it's awesome. Yeah. I just had the, I had so much goddamn fun revisiting these movies. Yeah. I mean, he did have, I'm, I'm just looking at the filmography and it's, it is funny that he had such a sort of weirdly inauspicious start because his first two films are sort of these notorious flops by like many people's standards uh, with 1941, the Steven Spielberg movie and Heaven's Gate, the Michael Cimino movie. He has like very bit roles, kind of like blink and you'll miss some roles in both. But I've always just thought that was like maybe a weird omen of where his career was going to go, um, that he was sort of, you know, the champion of particularly Michael Cimino at a time where he was sort of falling out of favor, even though I am someone who is a defender of Heaven's Gate. And I think there's a lot to appreciate in that movie. Um, I don't think coming off of those two films, like anyone necessarily thought he was going to be like the next big thing, like the next James Dean. Uh, but yeah, it's, but that's a great comparison too. Cause I do if he had think died young, he would have been James Dean. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I think, um, the, the body heat performance in particular really reminds me of James Dean, like a lot. What's the matter? You can't think a little music. It's like this. I said, it's fast, it's hot, it's simple. That's it. Yeah. You can use the clock or rig it to something that moves. Starts big, it'll go with just the mag chips. If you want a little more, splash a little accelerator around. So just regular gasoline? Yeah, regular, unleaded, supreme, whatever you like, counselor. I gotta tell you though, this mama's got a big drawback to it. What? It's easy to spot. Even after the meltdown, they're gonna know it's arson. I don't care about that. That's all there is to it? No, no, that ain't all there is to it. You gotta get in, you gotta get out. You gotta pick the right spot, the right time. And you gotta try not to get famous while you're in the act. That's all there was to it. Any idiot could do it. I'm sorry. And I wanna ask you something. Are you listening to me, asshole? Because I like you. I got a serious question for you. What the fuck are you doing? This is not shit for you to be messing with. Are you ready to hear something? I want you to see if this sounds familiar. Anytime you try a decent crime, you got 50 ways you can fuck up. If you think it's 25 and then you're a genius and you ain't no genius. You remember who told me that? Hey, no smoking in here. Look, why don't you let me do it for you? Gratis, I'll do it. I wouldn't even be on the street if it wasn't for you. Thanks. I sure hope you know what you're doing. You better be damn sure, because if you ain't sure, then don't do it. Of course, that's my recommendation anyway. Don't do it. Because I'll tell you something, counselor, this arson is serious crime. <laughs> a 
let's let's talk about body yeah, heat because sure. body heat's been on my to do list for years because I, I love eroticism in cinema and right. I feel like it is such a complete total lost art from the day. Like sex and movies have gone their separate ways, whereas sex and TV are totally have a nice happy coexistence. Mm-hmm. But body heat's a it's a sultry movie, and granted he's not in a lot of it, but when he shows up. You can't take your eyes off of them. So you hadn't seen it until I hadn't seen Body Heat. I mean, I'd seen the the juicy bits like on MrSkin.com. Because, you know, as a kid, I was obsessed with Kathleen Turner because, like, Romance in the Stone and War of the Roses. I just was totally in love with her as a a little kid. And there, that movie did not disappoint. And it was a great film noir. But what I miss is film noir that actually does have skin. Like, once again, Mm -hmm. movies. I mean, I, I love seeing movies like Avengers Endgame. But I also like seeing movies like Body Heat, where you have these like late '40s, early '50s right. kind of murder, hard-boiled mystery stories with abundant sexuality, and of course you have this arsonist in there played right. by Mickey Rourke, who adds just an additional element of danger to what is already a very dangerous environment. Yeah, I think that's a great summation of that movie. I mean, it's definitely it's a movie for adults. It's like a, it's like something you don't really see much of anymore. It's like about adults. It's for adults. They talk like adults. Um, like, hey, exactly. lady, you want to fuck? Or, I mean, um, yeah, I think it's like probably for me after Chinatown, it's it's one of the best kind of homages to that era. And obviously it's bringing in more contemporary sex and violence that the, the original film noirs couldn't because of the code and what have you. But and it's sort of this, uh, for me, a weird anomaly in, in Lawrence Kasdan's filmography, who largely has done these sort of like very kind of warm and fuzzy, big chill, and yeah, Grand which Canyon. which is not detracting from those or anything, but you know, just this movie is so kind of like cool, and I don't think you associate Lawrence Kasdan with cool, even though he did co-write like a couple of Star Wars films, but um, yeah, it's like he does have that weird like st- scene stealing thing where. You know, he, he has a couple of scenes opposite William Hurt where he's basically, um, you know, giving some some plot information, but also kind of uh, essentially warning the William Hurt character. Uh, and of course, the William Hurt character is, is sort of notoriously dense. And so he doesn't take Mickey. He's very running. slow on the pickup, <laughs> <laughs> which is part of the fun. I mean, I think there's even a great line where Kathleen Turner says, like, you're not that smart. I like that in a man or whatever. Uh, and it's sort of always a huge debt to double indemnity. Absolutely, um, those James and Kane novels, it, yeah. it, it fits right in there. Like what Postman always rings twice, all those kind of stories. It is absolutely a movie in that tradition. Yeah, but I think it's just, it, yeah, he's like a really interesting element. Um, you kind of want to see more of his character, but it, you like what you see. And it's a, just a really cool, I mean, it's by most people's standards, it's his debut. It's certainly the moment that I think a lot of people took notice of him. Um, and it seems to have set him up perfectly t- for his next movie, which I think is sort of a huge showcase for him. Even though it's an ensemble movie, it feels like it's his movie, which is Diner. The man has got their opinion. heard about my basketball bet. And I'm already down for 10 bucks. Oh, big spender. Come on. Hey, listen, Teddy. If you guys want in on this, I'm gonna tell you how to shaving points in this game. You heard the shaving points? Yeah. How do you know? Look, I know this is no bullshit tip. How do you know? I heard about your tips before, costing fifty bucks. How do you know? No way. No. What's your what's your resource? Don't get in. Listen to me. They are shaving points on this game. Do you For, want in or not? They're definitely shaving points. You feel uh, secure? Eating. Who's the guy? Who's the no, then why do you always gonna ask me questions? I don't know who the guy is. I don't know if I, 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 I trust him. Let me make it fifteen because 
Make it 15. Boy, what are you? Can I ask you a question? I mean, don't, you don't make it 20. If you're really sure, make it 20 bucks. Don't, don't do it, Bodell. Well, I'm me... telling you, I lost 50 bucks last game. All right. You guys These tips are You're off on the subject. Can you, can you quit? 15 bucks would be good now. Bodell, who do you pick? Sinatra or Matt? <laughs> would, you, would you just let that die, please? It's important to me. It's, it's annoying it's me, important okay? In my You've life. been I asking that the... question to every mo that walks in here. Okay, well, would you just forget Well, maybe, it? maybe I have something to gain from the answer. Did you ever think of that? Maybe I have something what to gain. What does it matter? Let the man speak. Let the man speak. Speak. Presley. <laughs> okay, there you go. There is the definitive answer. So not for Mathis, it's Preston. Fine. You're okay, sick. there. You got your. You, you feel better. I mean, did you learn something? There? You've gone like two steps below in my my uh, book. <laughs> Once again. I guess you're full. I would sacrifice anything. Come what? Yeah, I was watching Diner for the first time in years today, and it, you know it's it's star studded with a lot of people who went on to very good careers. Right. But goddamn, anytime he's on the screen, <laughs> especially he's probably like the only person in there who I mean, there, there's guys can get a little douchey sometimes when they're all hanging out and they're right. drinking all night and so on and so forth. He's probably the only person in there with like a heart yeah, <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways who's actually nice to Ellen Barkin's character and shows a sweet side. But at the same time, he just, much like in Rumblefish, he just seems a little bit cooler than everybody else. I right. Mean, when y'all were kids, y'all were probably really close. But I feel like in a lot of ways, he's kind of outgrown his friends, even if he does have this degenerate gambling problem that's really holding him back. Yeah. And I also, I think there is sometimes with friends that dynamic where even in your group of friends, there's a friend who is demonstratively the cooler friend. And he certainly is that guy. I think I've heard that when they were making the film, he kind of did sort of stand apart from the other guys and was sort yeah, Steve of... Steve Gutenberg's hilarious, but he's not cool. Right, at right. All, at and, all. And I think um, you, you definitely... Like Paul Reiser's not cool. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I think like that, that movie is kind of a, like a potpourri of, of sort of bad behavior from men. It's sort of like... That, that's what I think of when I think of that movie. It's sort of like this interesting look at just like... Like sort of coming of age for men and how we can be really immature and really kind of simple-minded and... And they're at this interesting nexus of, you know, you finish school and you're trying to be an adult, but you kind of miss being a kid. And I think he's the most probably complex character of the bunch because, yes, he has like the gambling issue. He also works at a hair salon, which, again, it's sort of undercutting the tough guy image that he works in this hair salon. Of course, salon. he gets more, more, I mean, gets more action than any of them as a result of uh, being sure. around women all the time and understanding how to talk to them. Well, yeah, to me, the quintessential scene in that movie is there's this whole bit where he's trying to bet his friends that he's going to have this, like, hot girl in town uh, touch his business, and he does sort of the, the, the silly uh, sticking his dick in a popcorn uh, container thing, and it's played out, like, pretty long and hilariously, and then... You know, she ends up doing it. I mean, that's that goes without saying. But what's amazing about it is, by most people's standards, that's like a pretty atrocious thing to do. But he kind of follows her out into the lobby and he gives her this sort of very uh, sweet performative sob story about how like he just couldn't help himself because she was just is. so beautiful. But he's and... the consummate bullshit artist. Right, right. And I love that he is, as he's telling her this story, he, of course doesn't neglect to suggest that this the force of his erection is so strong that it bursts through the popcorn container which of course intrigues her she's like yeah go on yeah <laughs> and it just it's it's again a lot of other people could not pull off a scene like that i could see like a robert redford at his peak or certain people who are are charming enough 
that people or like a Warren Beatty or folks like that, where you can forgive some like douchery to your, to use your word, you know, because they're so damn charming. And I just watching with my wife, it was sort of funny. Cause like, I think that would be the kind of scene that she would normally kind of roll her eyes at. And even she kind of acknowledged that it was just like a great moment and he really owned it. Um, and, and as the film on, you know, progresses, you, you kind of have all of the different characters, their stories kind of, collide and reach sort of you know reasonable conclusions and i just think his one is the most interesting one how it all comes together um and he's just such a like magnetic presence in that movie and i feel like whenever people are like well i don't know like when was mickey work good or i've never seen young mickey work like that's the movie i would point to because i think it's probably Those people been... need to be smacked in the mouth <laughs> <laughs> well but you know i think i mean you probably run into this a lot too i i work with a lot of young people i know a lot of younger people and who are oblivious to the 1980s and 1990s that and i would say in their defense and and this has come up on your podcast before uh there's not a lot of venues for them to see a lot of this stuff like they're just it's not streaming it's not like airing on television and so it's honestly just i think like not in their consciousness like they have no and that's sense just of the it. sad reality like when in the 90s yeah. when i first started really getting into movies i had like two or three friends who loved old stuff but the rest right. could not care less like yeah. most people watch the movies that they liked when they were young and like right. i know a lot of people in their 40s now who if they sit down with their wife or girlfriend and watch a movie they're gonna watch something they loved 20 years ago and, th- right. and if they're gonna show something to their kids once again whatever they were in their teens or 20s that they love that's what they're gonna gravitate to and that's right. just the sad yeah. reality because like for instance like pope of greenwich village which is like a, a classic movie that is referenced all the time it just recently uh went up on amazon prime but for years you could not Hard find it anywhere i have a really crappy dvd copy of it and i've always i remember uh like criterion has a thing where you can you know suggest titles and i always have suggested that one and i'm always like fingers crossed that they'll do like a nice refurbished version of it because i think it's warranted oh it's one of the essential Um, new york movies yeah uh, yeah, we talked about on the Stuart rosenberg episode we did with adam shartoff from filmx radio and you know this is a guy who directed like cool hand luke and all these amazing movies but if you like movies like mean streets and you like these like these stories about 'er ne'er-do-wells just trying to get by when they've got friends who are dragging them right down to the gutter. <laughs> it's just, it's a riveting movie. I, I can't take my eyes off. That yeah. I, mean streets is a great compare. I mean, it's basically like baby mean streets to me. And, and, um, Carlito's way also reminds me of just the same idea of like a, a terrible friendship that, you know, you, that this person just cannot extract themselves. From. And the moment you turn your back on said friend, right. They're doing the most horrible backstabbing shit imaginable <laughs> and yeah. somehow acting as if they're still doing you a favor. And that's a tor- that movie's a tour de force for Eric Roberts too because it took my thumb Charlie. Right. And you and you like you you I've no I can't think of a movie where I've wanted to like strangle a character and also felt such empathy for them at the same time. I mean, he's such a fuck up. There's no other way to describe that character. And yet there's something so innocent and naive about him that you're like I don't know, it's it's the Mickey Rock character in that movie is just very much an audience surrogate and very relatable in that way. Um, but yeah, I think just it's, it's, it's hard to get people on board with him because a lot of these movies weren't huge commercial hits and, and they haven't been sort of resurrected a lot. I mean, I think Diner is like probably the most well-known of his early stuff. Well, Barry but... Levinson's had such a fantastic career and he's had so many just home run successes that yeah. a lot of people naturally just want to go back and study his whole filmography. When it comes to movies about a place that have no plot, 
the, the, the shining example always, oh, see Diner, it's about Baltimore, but if you want to see how it's done properly, yeah. these character-driven ensemble pieces where you don't really have a plot to speak of, but you still are just absolutely totally consumed by the drama. Yeah, Diner, I feel like, is, is like a great case study for studying how to write that kind of script. Well, if you think about like the last scene of that movie... Uh, I always love a movie, and I actually, it's just a weird comparison to make to Avengers Endgame, but I will make it in the sense that both films have that thing of the the emotion kind of sneaks up on you, where you're sort of like, I didn't realize I cared about these people as much as I did until I realized it, and there's something nice about that, and I always felt that way about Diner, where, you know, it's a funny movie, and it's it's quirky, it's, it's probably like a, a little bit darker and more sophisticated than Animal House, but a similar thing of just a bunch of fun characters growing up. Uh, but then I feel like that moment at the end where they're at a wedding and Paul Reiser is giving this toast and they're kind of panning over the faces of the guys. And you come to realize that in however many minutes you've been spending with them that you've come to have like a genuine affection for these people. And you you understand that their closeness as well. And it just provides a richer experience when you can sort of say, oh, I hung out with these characters and I feel like I've actually gotten to know them as, a, as opposed to sort of like a surface level. Thing. And it's a very rich film upon reviewing. I mean, I feel like a lot of movies you're one and done and you're good to go, but Diner, you can definitely dip your toes back into the water and have right. an excellent movie-going experience. You know, I saw her on television. I was sitting in a comfortable bar and I was minding my own business. They had one of those award shows on the TV. When the camera went over the audience, I saw her. Yeah? And I knew if I went out to California, I'd find her. I thought she was dead, man. And now I know. Now I know why the old man always said, you look exactly like your mother. Yeah? I must look like her too, huh? She's living with a fucking movie producer. Well, she was then, I don't know. Was she? Was she glad to see you? Oh, yeah, she was, yeah. She said it was the yeah. funniest thing she ever heard of. She wanted me to come in and move in with her. California is, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. It's even, even better than here. California's nice, huh? Nice place. California. California's like, uh. Yeah, California's like a beautiful wild. Beautiful wild girl on heroin. Who's high as a kite? Thinking she's on top of the world. Not knowing she's dying, even if you show her the marks. Well, let's talk about the movie that I feel, where I feel like Mickey Work finally gets to be cooler than cool that's Rumblefish which <laughs> right. you mentioned is one of, like, one of the first ones that you saw with them but yeah but this is I mean obviously Francis Ford Coppola with The Outsiders was already kind of in this mode and it's interesting how he would choose to do a movie that was kind of similar in terms of the story but wildly different in style and mm -hmm. approach like The Outsiders visually has almost nothing in common with Rumblefish yeah. but then you watch Rumblefish and you have these like black and white sequences with the uh, the the red uh, the red fish and things like that or just all these dream sequences like with Diane Lane when he's in like woodshop working but for right. people out there who have not seen this because I feel like it's an obscure Coppola flick what's going on in Rumblefish well and also the score is amazing too I just bought the soundtrack recently on vinyl and it's great um, Stuart Copeland from the police does it um yeah so it's one of two uh adaptations of se hinton books which were young adult novels again sort of ahead of Back their when time that was cool 
Yeah, I mean, obviously now there's a million of these movies, but I think at the time it was considered a pretty like unusual risk on like the outsiders part. had like this like outlaw quality in the early. Yeah. 80s. I remember as a kid, was like, oh, you've, you someone let you see the outsiders? Yeah, and I, like I think they're both really effective movies. I mean, I think I prefer Rumblefish um, just because I think with that one he's experimenting even more, and it's. I mean, Coppola is such an iconoclast. He's always sort of ragged on a lot of his own movies that are more celebrated, but Rumblefish is a film he's often cited as one of his better, more personal movies for him um it's super low budget it's basically uh you know matt dillon is sort of like a a street hoodlum who's getting into all sorts of trouble um and he has this sort of uh mysterious older brother who's been gone from town for a long time called the motorcycle boy this is mickey rourke he sort of shows up again in the midst of this kind of turf war with with other kids in the neighborhood um and when he shows up instead of being kind of like the uber tough guy that he's perceived to be. He's kind of this sensitive, gentle soul who's essentially trying to steer the Matt Dillon character towards kind of a more egalitarian life. Um, and brokering and, peace deals between the various factions. Yeah, and, and um, again, he's sort of kind of a Christ figure, I guess. I don't know <laughs> if there's any other way to describe it. I mean, he's, he's certainly, uh, you know very mystic and he's it's one of those cool things like in the third man where you know somebody's built up and built up and then when they arrive they don't even have to do much because they there's been so much kind of uh, aura built around them and i feel like that's certainly true of his character in this movie um and yeah i think it, 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 it again relies heavily on his charisma and sex appeal and the movie just looks so great it's like beautiful black and white cinematography um, and I just think it's one of like the great kind of adolescent angst movies, even though he was much older than he's playing. Yeah, everybody in this movie is like 25, but they're playing right. that kind of that late team. But it's such a ferocious cast. We got like Nicolas Cage in there. You got yeah. the young Sofia Coppola with these giant buck teeth. who's absolutely adorable. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, Lawrence and... Fishburne's incredible. Dennis yeah. Hopper's incredible. And that's what I like about Mickey Rourke's character is he's one of those classic guys who gets along with everybody. Like wherever right. he goes in town, he fits right in there. He has respect. Yeah. He has love. He has affection. And Matt Dillon is just a fucking mess and he has no respect wherever he goes. And everybody knows that if he ever tried to be a leader like his big bro, like Nicolas Cage kind of takes him outside. He's like, you're just going to get people killed. Right, right. Whereas people would follow Mickey Rourke to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And I think it's like a, it would be, I I wish I had seen it when I was even younger because I think it's one of those movies where if you're at the right age, it could mean a lot to you. I mean, I know a lot of people who definitely discovered The Outsiders when they were kind of you know, 13, 14, 15, kind of trying to figure out their place in the world. And I do think it's a great movie on that level. I think now I just enjoy it more as an exercise in style. And I'm, I'm a huge Coppola fan. And I, I think it's one of his sort of later experiments that worked. I think there's a lot that don't. But that's one where I feel like um, it'd be interesting to see if he had continued in that path. But unfortunately, the film pretty much bombed. So... He didn't really make another one quite like it, but um, yeah, yeah, Coppola. He's he's got such a strange career, man. You had these just stinkers like Jack, and they're like, "Why <laughs> did you even accept this?" And because right. you can tell what he really wants to do is make movies like like Rumblefish his entire career. But like yeah. that that period in the seventies where he did the Two Godfathers, Conversation, and Apocalypse Now is as strong a period as any American oh, yeah. director can can lay claim yeah. to. But I feel like after 
the horror of his experience making Apocalypse Now, he retreated to these smaller movies. Right. And yeah, Diner, I mean, not Diner, uh, Rumblefish is a perfect example of what's a great way to kind of tap the brakes. Like when Scorsese made After Hours, he was basically kind of tapping the brakes because uh, King of Comedy hadn't done well and Raging Bull had nearly killed him. And he just needed just a small movie to, to find his bearings. And sometimes I feel like that's the, uh, the best thing a director can do when they're kind of having a career crisis. Yeah. But real quick, I see your scotch is empty. I, I'm out of the blended. <laughs> so what I can can do i can give you uh, i don't need to record this as <laughs> a white kid from the suburbs yeah. for me it was just a complete total eye opener like right. you quite literally just stepping into another world that was totally un- unfamiliar and we were just blown away and I feel like it just opened the floodgates to yeah. Menace to Society juice and all these other and, movies and Juice oh, I love yeah, Juice yeah. Yeah. yeah Juice is 99 I guess that was 94 a few years yeah. later but I feel like every major black director now owes a huge debt to him because I feel like he really ushered in this sort of new renaissance that, that continues to this day um, and he was one of those rare black directors who really was able to just finance projects just off the strength of his name um, and I even like some of the commercial stuff he's done. I enjoyed the Shaft movie he made with Sam Jackson and everything. And I think I just feel like he had more career left in him. And I, it's that's when it's really upsetting to me when somebody still had good work ahead of them. And also, you think when he came along, like would there have been an F. Gary Gray right. without Singleton? Yeah, yeah. Like he's there's a big, there's so many yeah. people that followed his model that came after him. And also, he was sure. like 24 yeah. when he made. Uh, right. I, I started. I pressed record no in the yeah. middle of the conversation. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, director John Singleton sadly passed yeah. away at age 51 on the day of this recording. And just he obviously, if he had wished, he had a good 20, 25 more years of work in him. Had he wished to continue, but yeah, just stroke fifty-one. That's just such crap luck. Yeah, and I do think, I mean, the the film Boys in the Hood will always be a major landmark and stand the test of time. I think before that, there's sort of like a before Boys in the Hood and after Boys in the Hood when it comes to black cinema and in terms of urban culture being portrayed in films in a, a fairly more realistic way, and also just from the perspective of African Americans. I mean, that alone was sort of a huge sea change because even some of the great black exploitation movies were written by white people and directed by white people. And this was, you know, a and, 20... the, and they were like genre entertainment. Right. Like, like even like, like new Jack city was still like a cop movie, like a gangster sure. movie. Yeah, yeah. Whereas boys in the hood was about these, these kids. These yeah. Guys. Yeah. And, and it's an ambitious movie. I mean, he, he covers, you know, their basically their entire adult lives and their childhoods. And you have sort of, <laughs> I keep thinking of, Basically, the the Lawrence Fishburne character is sort of like a black Atticus Finch, and and he's sort of a fascinating element in that movie. Oh, that speech he gives um, in the neighborhood when he's talking yeah. about gentrification and like trying to maintain like you control over your own property so people don't come in and scoop it up from underneath you and then make a profit. And that was a really yeah. interesting insight into that period because obviously you go to like certain parts of L.A. and it's like, is this a black neighborhood? Is this a Korean right. neighborhood? Like, <laughs> what, what is this? And he wrote it. I mean, I think you know. 24 year old kid I mean I, I mean now I'm old enough to view a 24 year old as a kid wrote this movie directed it got a best director nomination the youngest ever to get one still that record stands maybe will stand forever who knows um, and again you know not many African Americans have been nominated for that award none have ever won um, and so that alone I just think um, 
you know, all due respect to him, it's a huge loss and, and he will be missed. So there's not a lot of filmmakers out there who can claim to have launched like a subgenre. Like I remember when yeah. Pulp Fiction came out, suddenly there are a bunch of imitation Tarantino, Tarantino movies out there. But after Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. urban like ghetto films suddenly became really popular yeah. for like four or five years there where it's just like, like the floodgates were open and people don't really seem to make this anymore. I feel like it's yeah. gone over to TV, whereas movies kind of ignore that subject no, matter that's a great entirely. Point. I mean, The Wire obviously covers a lot of this ground. Um, yeah, I mean, Boys in the Hood, in addition to all of the critical claim, was also just like a big commercial hit. And if you've seen that film, it's an incredibly sad, uh, serious movie. It has some lighthearted moments, obviously, but it, it's a tragic movie. And, and the idea of a movie that would be, quote unquote, considered such a downer, uh, being a hit now, it would be hard to imagine, which is sort of sad. Um, yeah, yeah. Like Hollywood's lost the ability to get behind these mid-budget and or lower-budget movies that are still wildly commercial, right. but don't have people in tights yeah. touching each other <laughs> in the face. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we can do a John Singleton episode yeah, on another yeah. day, because today we are going to be, we got still so many great ones to, to get to. So we've kind of touched a little bit yeah. on the Pope of Greenwich Village, but anything about his performance there, because he's almost the straight man there to this wild uninhibited performance by Eric Roberts. I'm out. I'm on the street. He fired you? No, he fired us. They nailed you on that big check. He should die. Die! Die, you old bastard! No, Paul, you don't want to should die. Ronnie told you that it was my job. Tully? Hey, man. No. Hey, man, don't blame me for what that old no, bastard done to you. He fired you, man. Him. Hey, let me out of here, right? Charlie. You were starving in that shit house. Hey, why don't you grow up, for Christ's sakes? Why don't you just fucking grow up, Charlie? Charlie, what? Why? And we were like a couple of victims in there. You know, we could do better. We could do a thousand percent better. Hey, hey man, don't think so small. For once in your life, don't worry about a lousy job, okay? Don't worry about a job? Don't worry about it. What the fuck should I worry about, huh? I owe six different department stores. I got two Shylocks I got I got Shylocks, who you ain't alone here. Yeah. And those other assholes at stores? You got no job now. They can't collect no money off. Why can't you just admit you was wrong, huh? Why can't you just say, Charlie, I was wrong? Wrong? Yeah, wrong. Where was I wrong? What did you say? I said, where was I wrong? Where was you wrong? Ronnie told you not to rob. You robbed. That got me fired. You was wrong. You understand that? Charlie. You were wrong. You understand that? I didn't figure I'd get caught. You didn't figure we'd get caught. Look, man. If I figured I'd get caught, I'd be a thousand percent wrong. But if I didn't figure I'd get caught, then I wasn't jeopardizing you a job, man. You don't you understand, huh? Oh man. Don't no. keep oh, your man. hands off. Oh, man. Look what you did to my suit. Huh? I'm sorry. Look what you did to my suit. I'm sorry. What do you need a fancy suit for, Charlie? You got no job to wear it to, man. What did you say? Come on. Huh? Say that again. Say it again. Say it again. Say what say what you just said again. What about you, my suit. Say, say, what do I don't need? Tell me what I don't need. What do you need a fancy suit for, Charlie? You got any job to wear it, That's right. Why? Here's your button. Come on, man. Hey, man, let's go watch the sun come up like the old days. Hey, salute! We'll sit and have a couple of cognacs, like gentlemen. Hey, let me tell you something. I don't have time to sit and watch the sun come up. Kabish, I don't have time.
But I feel like the king of cool Mickey Rourke persona is still alive and well there where he's trying to get a restaurant going. He's trying to, he's basically trying to live a normal, responsible life. And he just keeps having his life kind of dragged into ruin by his less responsible friend. Yeah, I would, I think that's a good summation of, I mean, I think that's probably one of my favorites. I mean, he's essentially, yeah, he's sort of the Harvey Keitel to Eric Roberts's De Niro. And that, to me, the same thing is true of both of those movies that, uh, clearly, like De Niro gets the flashier performance in that film, and Eric Roberts gets the flashier performance in this one. But I just I feel like this is the movie that showed what a leading man Mickey Rourke could have been. Um, he just sort of owns the screen every time he's on it, and and you know he has sort of yeah a certain swagger and a cool about him. Um, the sort of big climax. Daryl Hannah is his girlfriend, right? Then they, they, that's a whole interesting thing, and and I feel like um, his big. I mean, not to spoil much of the movie, but there's a big confrontation towards the end with uh, Burt Young, who's sort of playing a, an unusually like intimidating heavy part. Obviously, most people know him as Paulie from the Rocky movies. Oh, but um, what Eric Roberts decides. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's God. a wild. The movie has After like this very wild. After losing his thumb, he's forced thing. to work as a waiter for these guys who yeah. amputated his thumb. I mean, it, yeah, for, it's a gangster movie without being a, like a in big bold letters gangster movie. It's not right. trying to romanticize it. It's not trying to make these guys into heroes. It's really showing like how a lot of these guys kind of live in squalor in a lot of ways, and it's a dirty, seedy, rough cutthroat biz yeah it has this it kind of reminds me more of like um i'm sure you've seen it blue collar the Paul oh, hell yeah, movie. It's, it's, a, it's a similar thing of like these are not professional criminals and as in life they make really bad mistakes they work with the wrong people you know if something isn't where it's supposed to be um and it's sort of it's both comedic but also has this kind of um, catch in your throat kind of tragedy sense about it. And I think the Eric Roberts character is a great illustration of that in the sense that there are moments where you want to laugh at him for being so kind of unbelievably stupid. And then there are other moments where you're just like, oh my God, this guy is so in and over his head. And, and we've all felt that way. So I think it's these are characters that you can weirdly relate to even if you don't necessarily support their life Could choices. Could they have flipped roles, do you think? Um no, because <laughs> I don't think I could ever buy uh, Mickey Rourke as being kind of as pathetic as Eric Roberts is. Like, I feel like you need to be kind of like the hot guy to be Mickey Rourke. I mean, I do think that's one of the things about him is like when you see the roles and, and we can get into this later that he turned down. Uh, one of the things that's annoying about it is they're the roles that he would have been perfect for. Yep. Um, and in some cases, like the, the next film, I think we're going to talk about personally, I feel like. It's a great performance, but I think he's wrong for the role. That's just my personal opinion. Interesting. So you're talking um, about Year of the Dragon. Yeah, I think it's a flawed but super interesting movie. With hindsight being 2020, yeah. if you're producing it, who would you hire in his place? Well, I think, and I don't think I'm wrong about this, I think the role was clearly intended for someone much older. Um, I he's mean, got the gray hair. Right, yeah. and I think, you know... Um, Jeez, off the top of my head, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, like a Ben Gazzara type or something. That's just the first person that popped into my mind. But I feel like the character is clearly meant to be kind of an older, more grizzled guy. He's I think, a Vietnam vet, etc. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not sure why. I mean, other than the fact that I think him and Michael Cimino had a great relationship and, and wanted to work together again, he seems like an odd choice for that movie. Um, I think he's great in it. To me, that what takes the movie down a peg for me is is the performances of of the female lead. Is is for me? It's so wooden that it really detracts from the movie. She was cast for her physical beauty, right? And, and she's and off the charts for beautiful. sure. But I think that that kind of takes me out of it a little bit. And then there's a subplot with his wife, which I find is a little bit 
clunky for me. But it's a tough movie because it's like, on the other hand, there's some amazing action sequences. Like the opening few minutes of the movie are just riveting. There's like a shootout in a restaurant that I know uh, Tarantino referenced as, as sort of a big touchstone for him. And it is awesome. Um, so it's sort of, for me, it's like a mixed bag, but, um, it's another like cool role for him. I, I always think of this scene in this movie where he dresses down, uh, this room full of cops and it, it feels improvised. Like he basically walks into this room. It's like a one shot thing. He kind of gives them this sort of macho tough talk thing. And then when he walks out, they kind of, it feels like a spontaneous, like people just start like woohooing and cheering. And it felt like, I don't know, cause I didn't do any research on it but it felt like an organic thing that sort of happened and he's he's just sort of still has that like electric thing throughout the movie where he's sort of a live wire um i think the movie is controversial for a lot of reasons and i think it's open to interpretation i feel like we're supposed to understand that his character is racist and not be supportive of that but i can see the counter argument which is like if you make your hero hold these views people will just sort of instinctually gravitate towards them and then want to support the things that they're saying. Well, it's a movie that's um, acutely aware of the distinctions between all these different neighborhoods, whether it's the Italian neighborhoods, the Chinese neighborhoods, the Polish neighborhoods, and they definitely... I mean, it's a, it's a weird transition period where, right. as I mentioned in the movie, Chinatown has gone north of Canal Street, and that's a, it's a big changing of the guard. If you go down to Little Italy today, it's a street, and Chinatown's bigger than ever. And I feel like guys like Chimino and Abel, like Abel Ferrara tackled this in a couple of movies like China Girl and yeah. things like that. And I find this period of New York fascinating because I visited New York in the 80s, but as a kid from the suburbs down sure. south, it's just this otherworldly environment. And it's just so completely, utterly foreign to me, just all these like really strong ethnic identities yeah. all rubbing up against one another. And just seeing this character, this cop, trying to navigate this wild criminal underworld that goes back thousands of years. And yeah. basically you have a modern day version of what the triads were doing over in Hong Kong, basically doing that same thing. And as far as they're concerned, that's just the way things have been done for <laughs> millennia. Right. And who are these Polish police officers to tell them to do it any other way? And I, I, I think it's one of these like one of these great flawed movies by a great director. And I'm always really fascinated by flawed movies by great directors where it somehow like the flaws make them even more interesting. Yeah, in, yeah, in, I agree with that for ways. sure. Yeah, and so I just find myself completely absorbed by it. Also, as you mentioned, when the action gets underway, it's just ferocious. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, again, I I don't know if folks would have seen this film or not, but I mean, there's a scene late in the film uh, where there's like a, a home invasion and attack on, on oh him and God, his wife. Jesus, that is one of the more grisly. Um, kind of just it's like a very shocking moment in terms of how it's staged and how abruptly it happens and i love how his boss and friend doesn't miss a beat he lives like a couple houses down he shows up with a shotgun in his pajamas <laughs> within seconds like do y'all just like sleep with your shotgun yeah i mean it's a very like intense crazy movie i mean again i i, I i'm very torn about it because i do find it very entertaining i just can't get past certain things about it that don't work for me but Everything you're saying is totally accurate in terms of it being kind of an interesting time capsule. I grew up in Jersey and most of my exposure, my father worked in New York for years. So I had these like jaunts where I would come into the city for different things for my dad's work. And it was a very vibrant time in the city and a very scary time in the city. Um, you definitely felt more of a threat of violence. I mean, now, you know, I've been living in New York now for 14, 15 years and, um, you know, it's been essentially Disneyland for that time. Um, you know, I've had a few 
scary moments from time to time, but more or less, you know, it's a very safe, peaceful city and you don't feel the same kind of intense culture clashes that you were describing. Um, and I think it movie, the movie is certainly valuable for that. And it shows that, you know, this was, I think, his first movie after Heaven's Gate that Michael Cimino still had something at that point. Yeah, he, um, he had some, a rapid case of diminishing returns. And also I yeah. like seeing the culture clash just within the Chinese community where you have this villain, Joey Tai, who's the much younger generation who is ready to spread his wings, flex his muscles a bit, and he's kind of shoving the older guys aside, right. a generation that's shown more restraint more sense of caution. Like there's this brilliant scene where they sit down with some of the Italian leaders from a few blocks north and there's this old guy with a vibrator and like utensil just to make <laughs> his voice box works and he's like, they keep taking things out of me and just right, like all right. these like these but I love seeing the cautious criminals, the guys who are seasoned versus this young, dynamic, brilliant criminal who mm -hmm. wants to rise up the ranks very quickly. So I think he was a great villain. And just like the fight scene in the bathroom where Mickey Rourke and him are fighting and every stall they open, there's like a different form of vice taking place. And all these <laughs> girls running with the guns and they're like shooting Mickey yeah. Rourke in the neck. Just the violence is so explosive and so overwhelming. It's not designed to be beautiful. It's designed to just have like maximum visceral impact. Yeah, that's a great point. There's no, um, which I think... Can work and and they're great. Yeah, like John Woo films and things right. like that. Right, yeah. and and De Palma's done some great action sequences in slow mo, but it is kind of refreshing to not see that. I feel like it's it can be a crutch a lot of times, and it's interesting to see action play out in a more like rapid fire kind of like blink and you'll miss it sort of way. I always find. I mean, I know like Scorsese does that a lot, and it, it it's more impactful for me because I feel like I remember Frankenheimer talking about this once uh, randomly enough. Uh, this is like such a dorky thing to reference, but it was like a Ronin. Oh, I love Frankenheimer. <laughs> it's like a Ronin director's commentary. And he was making the case. And it was interesting because this was like around the time The Matrix had come out, which of course is like the total opposite. It's it's, yeah, it's like beautiful, stylized, beautiful, stylized action. And he was making the case for violence being fast and ugly and not smooth and clean. And, you know, people getting, you know, shot maybe on the side of their face as opposed to like a direct perfect hit, you know, where it doesn't, there's no blood, you know, these things are messy. And, and I think, it, you know, different things work for different movies. I, I don't go to see an Avengers movie to see, you know, raw, grisly, realistic violence, but I do think in a film like this, it, it's essential. And I do think it delivers on that level. Um, but yeah, for me, it's sort of the first misstep, but it's not so much him. It's more the movie that doesn't fully work for me. Yeah. I mean, but, Chimino's um, got, Thunderheart and Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which is a very solid action flick, and he's obviously the Deer Hunter, which is just one of the great movies yeah. from the seventies. Heaven's Gate, for me, it's it's a little on the long side, but I find it absolutely riveting. But I totally get why some people can't watch yeah, the entire absolutely. sequence at Harvard; they just skip past <laughs> all that and just start, yeah, yeah. Start it's the not Western. for everyone. That's it for sure. is not for everyone. But I feel like at this point, Chimino still had something to say, mm -hmm. and some would say defend like the Sicilian and things like that. But yeah. he was rapidly dropping off a cliff, and luckily, Mickey Rourke still had a. Uh, quite a few bold, interesting chapters. Yeah, in yeah, front the, of next, the next one yeah. is certainly All right, so bold. nine and a half weeks, let's get into it. I don't know you. You really don't know me. I can't figure this guy out. I have a present for you. You can take off your dress. What? <laughs> you can ask me to leave. I don't want you to leave. Does this excite you? Yes. 
like this? Put them all on. There would be no hot to me. But I see danger. But I can't concentrate. Maybe it's too long. Game. It's whatever we want it to be. Who do you think you are? You're taking a hell of a lot for granted, aren't you? I think I've been hypnotized. But I never felt anything like this before. How did you know I'd respond to you the way I have? I saw myself in you. Mickey Rourke. Kim Basinger, nine and a half weeks. I saw the yeah. uncut film in its sure. entirety for the first time ever because once again, like uh, Body Heat, I'd seen the choice bits but I'd never sure. seen the movie overall. But for people who are unaware of this erotic drama, <laughs> well, what, what is nine and a half weeks? So, I mean, I, it's probably other than The Wrestler, probably his most famous movie, even though it made like no money, but it's sort of this infamously erotic. I wouldn't even really call it a thriller because it's not really a thriller. It's not Fatal Attraction. Right. Yeah. I think it's associated with that because it came out the year before and it's the same director and certainly a, a similar style. I mean, they're, they're beautiful looking movies are shot in a very like uber stylized way that Adrian Lyne likes to do. A lot of diffused lighting. Yeah. But it, I mean, it looks amazing. Um, but I guess it's essentially like a doomed romance. It's a really odd movie. I, I rewatched it recently too to prepare for this. And it's an odd movie because it's sort of plotless for a while and it's very slow paced. It's like inert. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And it's, again, it's not, I don't think it's what people are expecting. But then once it gets going, it is one of the more intensely graphic sexual movies I've seen in a long time. It still holds up in that regard. And I do think it, it really is like a cool role for him because, again, he's somebody who can do a lot by saying very little. He just sort of has this presence, and I feel like there's a real chemistry and sexual tension between him and Kim Basinger that works. And now I, I know that apparently she was like borderline afraid of him on set. And there, and a lot of those sex scenes were more fraught in the making than in the, the look of them. But like when they're on screen together, it's like an incredible thing to see. Um, I think, you know, it's more of like a mystery. I mean, you're essentially... You know, it's you know what I kept thinking when I watched it. It's like, oh, this is what those Fifty Shades of Grey movies like could have been, should have been. They they were they were reaching for right. Yeah. It should have been more mysterious. The 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 guy should have been more uh, dangerous and intriguing. Fifty Shades of Grey is a young adult novel that just happens to have like kind of soft and fuzzy, soft core S and M. Yeah, but, I think this film was like clearly trying to be again a movie for adults, like really taking this all very seriously. I mean, again, most people know that it has like a sequence where they're you know he's using food with her and all that kind of well, stuff. The scene I love is when she's looking at the art slides and masturbating. Like Kim Basinger prior right. to this, like she was pretty much known for Never Say Never Again, which was like, you know, a TNA role and she looks gorgeous in it. But later on she talked about how she started to feel like a real actress after this. Yeah. And her career blossomed I mean, she had like a 10 year golden period which led to movies like LA Confidential and all mm-hmm. these other flicks where you know she obviously like really knocked it out of the park so it was a huge turning point for her because without this do you get Batman a few years later and things right. like that and I think um, I don't know if this is the movie that started it but I remember later when I started to become a fan of his and digging deep coming to understand that he became something of a phenomenon in France so a lot of these films we're talking about did no business here in the States 
Um, he was turning down films that ended up doing really good business, but he obviously was sort of still viewed as kind of like a hot, interesting actor. I kind of would compare him to sort of Johnny Depp pre-Pirates of the Caribbean, where he was certainly respected and certainly viewed as sort of a good actor, but not a commercial guy. But an artist with integrity. Yeah, but, yeah. but this film, I believe, was sort of a huge deal in Europe, and I think they kind of picked up on his energy in a way that folks here in the states did not you know i think a lot of critics just viewed him as seeming like a skeezy guy i mean he is um, and he is he is <laughs> absolutely i mean i think he is in this movie and in later movies too like but wild orchid and things like yeah that. i mean to me that's the problem that unfortunately this movie presented which i think it kind of got him in this like typecasted thing where then like he, he started became doing the next shannon tweed there for a while yeah he was doing essentially a lot of knockoffs of nine and a half weeks so there's like a sequel to it that's not you know the movie that this one is and and i think wild orchid is another attempt to kind of do a nine and a half weeks type of movie but i just feel like this one was special i think this one was i think adrian line is obviously a better director than some of those other folks um, I mean, did Flashdance, Fatal Attraction. Uh, what are his other big ones? Uh, uh, Unfaithful. Yeah, he Unfaithful. Did. Diane Lane. But yeah, uh, but I, I like Adrian Lyne. He's one of yeah. one of those kind of forgotten directors. But in the '80s, he was huge. I mean, yeah, the, the, yeah. the first time I snuck into a movie was to see Fatal Attraction, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we we were totally spellbound. Yeah, and I I, I think it's um it's it's definitely again it's not for everybody. It's it's a lot quieter and and slower paced than I think some might expect and i think maybe it's why it did well in europe because i think it is paced more like a european film but i do think it pays off well and i think the final scenes when his character finally starts to sort of expose more of the darkness that's been kind of always lurking there underneath the surface um and there's a really kind of i thought compelling scene where where again i'm spoiling the movie but kim basinger is leaving him and he kind of can't bring himself to say what he really feels about her until she's left the room. Again, it's just like a little bit of that like Mickey Rourke magic that he had at that time where another actor would do it. You might roll your eyes. You might not buy it. But with him doing it, you buy it because he's sort of set up this very kind of like too cool, unflappable exterior this entire movie. And when you start to see it crumble, it's that much more compelling. Just to give you an opportunity to pontificate for a second, <laughs> what has changed in mainstream pop culture where never in a million years would you see Hollywood make a movie like this ever these days? Um, I What's th- changed? I feel like it was driven by the right. audience taste. So something's clearly changed in the culture. Well, I mean, I can only speak anecdotally from my experience because I tend to go off of, I go see a film because I'm a fan of the director or I'm a fan of the actor or uh, the reviews are good. So, uh, sometimes a trailer will get me. Uh, but I think most people I talk to, if I'm trying to recommend them a movie, they'll say, well, what is it about? Which I always think is tricky sometimes. Now, I always say a great movie is a movie that you remember and you can maybe even remember what it was like when you experienced seeing it. Now, sometimes that's a nostalgic thing, but sometimes it's just like, I really remember how that affected me. Um, but to me, sometimes it's not always a plot thing and so when style mood atmosphere right so if someone tells me like what is a movie about i'm like well i could kind of tell you what it's about but that's not going to do it justice like if somebody came to me diner is about nothing right (laughs) or or if you could like one of my top five favorite films of all time probably it's godfather 2 if somebody was like what is the godfather 2 about i mean it's about everything it's about families it's about america it's It's a great american saga you know it's about so many things and to reduce it to like a five word summation is sort of childish and folks will ask me how long a movie is they'll ask me who's in it 
And with a lot of folks, you've already lost them if they don't know who's in it, if a movie sounds like it's long, and if it sounds like something that they don't know what it's about. Um, Obviously, when you're getting into horror, people start asking you if something is scary, which I always find is sort of a silly question. So I just think there people put up these sort of imaginary roadblocks to their willingness to enjoy a thing. And I don't know if it's that we're so... I'm literally just speaking extemporaneously, by the way, so I haven't thought deeply about this, but I don't know if it's that we're so... Uh, pressed for time or believe that we are, that people don't want to really sit and fully take in a movie anymore. I think, I'm sure you've mentioned this before on the podcast, but nothing drives me crazier. And I come up against this a lot because I work in television, but you'll find these people who will say, well, I don't have time to watch movies. Um, You know, I want to watch movies, but I can't keep up. And, you know, you're just crazy because you watch everything. But then they'll watch, you know, 40 different TV shows that I've never heard (laughs) of. They're like 15 hour investments. Yeah, they're binge watching all these shows. And again, I I try to keep up. I mean, I'm late to a lot of TV shows, but I'm like, I'm aware there's great television. And so I'm like, you know, I just finished Fargo with my wife and I loved it. I loved Fargo. It's such a cool show, especially season two. uh, There's such a home. Yeah, season two to me was the masterpiece. And and, um, I'm, I'm watching Barry now which I'm really enjoying but it's like you know it's a lot and for me a film is always such a great like I'm in and I'm out everything that I can experience is in this concise amount of time and I can really kind of feast with it and then move on so for me it's it's not a challenge I I I love doing it when I leave here I'll probably watch a movie it's just like the thing I do to unwind but for a lot of other people I don't know I feel like they just they they get anxious about it and I think there's this desire to want things spelled out for them and want things that are not going to kind of ruffle their feathers too much. They want to go on YouTube and see ending explained. And right. And, and I, I like, think what? it's very strange. I mean, I remember my mother um, who, who not to besmirch her in any way, but she used to do that to me all the time. would be like, tell me how she would say, how does it end? And I would be like, why on earth would you want to know how the movie ends? You know, but it was something about, and she would, and this was usually action movies where, it doesn't necessarily detract from the movie to know how it ends because most action movies, the bad guy is going to lose. And so, you know, that's not ruining He's going to fall off the building in slow motion. Yeah, then, yeah, but it's sort of, there was something about it that for her was just like comforting. And I, I've heard this said about like Steve McQueen once that he kind of had a, a an element that bothered people in a movie. Like he was so intense and edgy that it made people kind of like, I don't know about this guy. I don't know if I can trust him or whatever. And I think Mickey Rourke has that quality. So I think a lot of his movies, like people, it's almost like they know he's a bad boy, but he's like too much of a bad boy. So they're like, I don't know if I can you know, dip yeah, a toe dang- into those waters. Yeah. There's some, there's a violence to him, both sexual and physical, and or at least the threat of it that could burst out at any moment that for me makes him extraordinary to behold yeah, I would on say the like, screen. Yeah, I would say about probably half of his movies are movies that you wouldn't want your parents walking in on you watching. You know, I think Angel Heart, like, I mean, we'll get there, but like that's one, for instance, that, you know. It's intense. There's just stuff in it that's wild and crazy, even by today's standards. And Bill Cosby disapproved for sure. And it's easy. It's understandable. (laughs) I mean, it's just, yeah, there's like animal sacrifice and like sex scenes with like pools of blood and and devils. And like, I mean, it is a crazy, but it's a great movie and it's, and it's one of his best ones. And, um, you know, people who under appreciate it and get on its wavelength will always be like, "Oh yeah, Angel Heart." That's like I've a never talked to somebody ever who has sat down and watched Angel Heart and not walked away saying that movie fucking rocks. Yeah, it's like, like casual movie lovers or cinephiles right. and everything in between. It's just such a great story and has such an unmistakable style. And 
you know what? Maybe before we get there, sure. just talk about Barfly first. Cause Barfly, oh, yeah, yeah, Barfly is our last step before, or stop before oh, Angel Heart. Oh, technically before. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, actually, you know what? They're both 1987. So, fuck it. We're on Angel Heart. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go Angel Heart. So, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, without Angel, giving away yeah. the beautiful, wonderful ending to this sure. movie, what is the gist? It looks like our Johnny has found himself a perfect disappearing act. Yeah. Seems so. Well, you know what they say about slugs. No, what do they say about slugs? They always leave slime in their tracks. You'll find them. No, I won't find them. Because I left out one little detail. This Dr. Fowler guy ended up dead with his fucking brains blown out all over the place, all right? Uh, Fowler? Yeah, Fowler. Did you kill him? No, I didn't kill him. But the cops might think I did. Mm. Hey, look, I took on a $125 a day missing persons job with you, all right? Now I'm a murder suspect. That's it, I'm out. Such are the hazards of your profession, Mr. Angel. If the fee bothers you, we can have it adjusted. No, Cypher, you bother me. Listen, the closest I ever come to death is standing on the corner on 2nd Avenue watching the stiffs go by in the hearse. All right? That's the way I like it. Are you afraid? Yeah, I'm afraid. I'll instruct my lawyer immediately to send you a check for $5,000. If you don't want the job, I'll engage someone else. Five thousand? Five thousand. You must want this Johnny pretty bad, huh? I don't like messy accounts. You know, some religions think that the egg is the symbol of the soul. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Would you like an egg? No, thank you. I got a thing about chickens. Okay, so uh, Mickey Rourke is a World War II veteran. It's a period movie. He's investigating uh, a murder. I guess, like, yeah, like a like a, some. Oh yeah, I guess like well, missing person, missing case. person, and then it ends up Lewis Cipher's in looking for this guy. And, yeah, and he's hired by a, a guy by the name of Lewis Cipher, who's played by Robert De Niro in like a very out of character, weird role, which I later heard was inspired by Martin Scorsese, which is super <laughs> funny. I mean, if you see his look, he does look his like personal style, sure. Yeah. yeah, like like Scorsese had like a similar like very full dark beard around that same time, um, and you know he has this like creepy thing where he's like peeling eggs uh and makes you want to grow your fingernails yeah and and what's cool about it is like he's great in it but like mickey rourke is very much his equal like you're never watching the movie and thinking like oh he's getting blown away it's like they're kind of on par with each other oh easily yeah um and basically he just goes on this sort of like intense journey sort of to hell and back which takes him like 
to the bayou and and, and he ends up having like uh, an affair with lisa bonet who's like involved in kind of weird sacrifice practices and stuff and, and of course poor mickey works got a thing about chickens right and and there's like these <laughs> and we learn why later on right and there and there's like these like strange like i mean it's alan parker so there's all these kind of amazing like weird dream sequences and unsettling imagery uh, and then, yeah, without ruining anything, it, it just leads to sort of like a very shocking revelation at the end. Um, and it's just like a gut wrenching movie. I mean, it's again, similar to year of the dragon, like the violence when it occurs is very, um, unsettling. Um, I think my, my wife saw it in like a religious studies class. Wow, <laughs> randomly enough in that's college. a cool class. Yeah. I think it's like, obviously it's one of those movies that if it had come out 10 years later, it would have been like a huge hit cause you had seven and you had this sort of huge like rush of psychological thrillers people were ready yeah. yeah that were in that kind of right on the borderline of horror but more psychological dramas like jacob's ladder kind of thing um and i feel Which like this another adrian line yeah oh they, yeah, yeah yeah i didn't even think about that but yeah this is like another one i feel like that could easily fit in with those um, I saw both of those right around the same time. So I always kind of lumped those two movies together, yeah. and I was just floored by both of them. I mean, oh yeah, it, and they both have uh, like military veterans. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a good time to be a, a young horror fan. Also, like I mentioned before, I mean, sex and horror go together, and sometimes it can be disturbing, and sometimes it can be incredibly arousing. This has the hottest sex scene of any horror movie. Although close seconds probably like don't look now. That one's a, a, a sure. strong contender as well, but. Good God, this movie just fucking <laughs> goes for it like, with, yeah. with, with zero tapping of the brakes in any way, shape, or form. And I, I mean, I, I, I take a lot of what Mickey Rourke says off screen with a grain of salt because he makes a lot of like extreme statements one way or the other about people he's worked with and directors and some he hated and some he liked. He's always sort of implied that he sort of wants to go further than you know, the people he collaborates with. So he always claimed that like, well, in nine and a half weeks, you know, I wanted to go further, but Kim didn't want to, and the director didn't want to. And I feel like with this one, I think there's like, he has similar weird quibbles. I, I don't know how, how much farther can you go? Exactly. I'm like, I don't know what you wanted to <laughs> Unless do. Unless they were to eat each other. Right. <laughs> I, that's the thing. It's like, and maybe it's why he ended up going drifting to boxing because he felt like he just needed to have more reality in, in, in the, his life in terms of like, you know, literally physically getting punched instead of like feigning it. I don't know. Um, it's interesting too, because like it's one of those films that just was not appreciated when it came out, and, and most of the reviews are really preoccupied with how scuzzy he looks in it because he's super unshaven and kind of sloppy. And this is kind of to me the beginning. That's of the his... horrible detective, detective tradition, though. Yeah. All these like Sam Spade stories and like all the stories written by Mickey Spillane and people like that. I mean, whether you're reading Raymond Chandler or any of those guys in the 40s and early 50s. The hero is not a clean-cut, square-jawed guy with like right. a clean press suit. He's always like sleeps to one in the afternoon, and he yeah. has a drinking problem, and he's probably got some violent issues in his in his background. Like the detectives should be deeply, deeply flawed. Like right. whether it's through racism or history of violence, or maybe a little time in jail. But I, I like it when the protagonist is fucked up in a lot of ways, and he is deep, a deeply haunted character. Yeah, and I think it, it's the beginning. I mean, this and Barfly are kind of the beginning of him deconstructing his sort of pretty boy roles, I think. Yeah, both he, movies. Barfly's <laughs> not pretty at all. Right. He's, he's got a big, he's, soft belly. He's deliberately undermining his image as like a heartthrob, which, you know, um, I think is like a smart choice as a creative person, but obviously 
uh, commercially hurt him. Let's uh, let's do Barfly. So yeah. Charles Bukowski, a lot of this is a, an author who has got a, a lot of intense, passionate admirers. A lot of actors and directors really admire Charles Bukowski's writing style. Like in any case, yeah. people who love the seedy kind of cheap squalor of like bar culture in LA romanticize this type of setting and this type of material probably well out of proportion but in my 20s when I lived in LA I spent a lot of time in cheap bars drinking Jameson on the rocks and just loved it to pieces and so I, I feel like I've dipped my pinky toe at least in this world of barfly and it, it feels really authentic and yeah. I, I love like Mickey Rourke how he doesn't really walk in this movie he's always falling forward <laughs> and kind of catching himself like horrible posture yeah. horrible coordination really unhealthy fighting every night drinking every day I mean just he's a fucking walking disaster and then in walks Faye Dunaway and yeah. does this like wonderful love story yeah and it's it. like I think in a sad way it's like the last I think it's the last great Faye Dunaway performance and Definitely. the last great Mickey Rourke performance for a while um, he got like an independent spirit award nomination for it. it. It certainly was sort of a bit of his, I think for more kind of critical acceptance. And, and I, I know Bukowski kind of, uh, signed off on his characterization, which is, is high praise. Cause a lot of folks, you know, don't love when people try to interpret well, I think he them. Even imitated his speech patterns to yeah, a degree. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, it's like a, you know, a tight 90 minutes or so. It, it's very kind of. Low on plot, but a lot of great character stuff in it. It feels very... It's one of the rare uh, good films that was made by the Canon group. Like, I that love... Was like, no, like I, a I saw many a Canon film group movie in the theater without irony. Like, right. it's like Revenge of the Ninja or Breaking... Yeah. I, a, I saw all these in the theater. When I say good, I only mean like, you know, a critically appraised... You know, obviously yeah, there's a, a lot a of fun... Sh- yeah, a Barbette Schroeder film. Yeah, there's a lot of fun Canon movies, but it's like a weird outlier that they it's made not this prestige movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, I, and it's it's strange because again, maybe it's because it didn't do well commercially. But for me, that's when the sort of descent happens. There's 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 films that come along where he has little moments. Like I think there are some uh, good moments that he has in, in Johnny Handsome, the Walter Hill movie. There's like other films where there's like a scene or two where it's like, oh, he he's good in this scene. But it just it, it, it gets like worse and worse at this point. I don't know if it's worth getting into the stuff that he turned down, but maybe oh, it's abso- worth absolutely. talking about it. Well, this I think point. it's the career that might have been. Yeah. Is, he, is extraordinary. He, yeah, I mean, let's say, so 87 is a good year to talk about because he was offered the uh, Kevin Costner role in The Untouchables, which obviously is an enormous hit and a great movie. It, might, it probably would have made the movie better. Like, I like Kevin Costner. Yeah. It's one of my favorite. I think it's one of his enjoyable De Palma movies. Yeah. But there are times where he's a little stiff, like, let's do some good. And granted, yeah. the character's a little stiff, but Mickey Rourke might have, uh, yeah, it, it would have been interesting. To your point, I think the character's descent into being a darker character would have been maybe more plausible and more interesting. I think I, I like Kevin Costner in it too. He's fine, but I think it would have been interesting for Elliot Ness to be not quite as much of a boy scout from the beginning. And he's such a white knight. Yeah. Would have brought that. Um, he also turned down a role in Top Gun, which who knows who he would have been, but obviously that movie was just so huge. It made a lot of folks careers. So <laughs> he obviously missed out with that one. Uh, he could have played the Tom Cruise role in uh, Rain Man, which came out the following year, which would have reunited him with Barry Levinson. And again, it's a part that I think he would have been perfect for. I don't know how like, it's one of Tom Cruise's best roles. Yeah. Tom Cruise is great. And like, yeah. it's it, it for him, it was obviously like a great, to me, that's like the movie that, other than The Color of Money, that kind of established like, oh, Tom Cruise can act, right? Like, that's I love sort of Color Money. Yeah. Why that those films are, are helpful? Because I think if you didn't see those films, you would just think, oh, he's Cocktail. like just a movie star, but he could act. And but I think Mickey Rourke, opposite 
Dustin Hoffman would have been even more tense because I think as much as Tom Cruise is like a jerk in that movie, you never 100% think he's totally irredeemable. Like he's Tom Cruise. So you kind of know at some point he's going to be nice. I think if it was Mickey Rourke, you would never be sure if he's ever like just not totally using his brother. Um, so I think that would have been a really interesting movie. Um, a little bit later, this one kills me. He was offered uh, the Bruce Willis role in Pulp Fiction, which again, Bruce Willis is amazing in that movie. I would never want to replace him, but just Mickey Rourke having been a real boxer kind of I mean he was in the middle of his career yeah, his three year stint as so, a professional boxer you know who knows maybe I mean I don't know maybe you know better than me if that was like a strong choice that Tarantino didn't want to show a fight scene or if it was like a budgetary thing but you could have had that potentially with him uh, I think just at that stage of his career, he had really like lived hard in a way that Bruce Willis hadn't. And so, well, it goes back to the whole authenticity question. He's the genuine article and, yeah. uh, and whereas everybody else is just pretending. I mean, as an, just as an amateur, Mickey Rourke had 27 wins and three losses. And granted, these are amateur fights. He started when he was 12 right. and he won his first boxing match as a 112 pound flyweight. And he fought throughout most of his teens and got up to eventually like 140 pounds. But if you have, I mean, I don't have 30 amateur boxing <laughs> matches in my name. Like that's a, that's a absolutely a remarkable achievement. I, mean, I, I don't know what his professional record he was. was better, he has more wins than losses. Like yeah. he, I think it was, my sense of it is that it was not, it was serviceable. Like he wasn't like a joke, but most people, it was sort of like, <laughs> I would, I would compare it to Michael Jordan uh, playing, going, baseball. playing baseball in yeah. the sense that it's like, Clearly, he's way better than the average person who would attempt to play baseball, but he's just not meant to be a baseball player. But he was, by the end of his stint as a baseball player... He had gotten better. He'd gotten way better. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, who knows if Mickey Rourke would have been like this great boxer, but when he started the second time, he was obviously already on the older end of things. Um, and I just think he deprived us and himself of a lot of amazing opportunities. Also, in the 80s, it wasn't like he was like living off of like steak and kale shakes. He no. was drinking and doing drugs and screwing all these sure. girls and just acting like a fucking maniac. Yeah, and I and I think he has so even conceded that you know he lost a lot of goodwill by being kind of terrible on set and being difficult and and. You know, a lot of these roles he turned down, he turned down for sort of pompous, snooty reasons that he thought he would like it would be a bad movie. I mean, the person I think that I'm really reminded of when I look at all the things he turned down is James Caan, who's sort of a similar performer to me. Um, and his list of like roles he turned down, literally, it's like every great male role of the 70s, like James Caan passed on it at one point. Even Superman, James Caan passed on. Like, it's just like he's wanted to, I guess, sabotage his career on some level. Um, that must be so haunting though, like lying in bed at night when you see people like <laughs> accepting Oscars or appearing in hit movies and you're like, oh my God, like what did I do? I mean, it's one of the reasons I think why actors are crazy. They're just yeah. so riddled with doubt and like self-criticism because it just, there's no clear path to right. success, which I guess it's the best thing you can do is just find the best filmmakers you can and work with them again and again. For sure. But God damn, it must be just torturous for these people and, living that way. And in his defense, some of the, I mean, Rain Man on paper you wouldn't think, oh, that, that that was literally the biggest hit of 1988. You would not think a film about like an autistic man and his like selfish brother would be this phenomenon, but it was. Um, but like another one that kills me is uh, Tombstone. He was supposed to play the Johnny Ringo role. He'd been brilliant, yeah. He I, mean, would, I like I, Michael Bean, but Michael Bean's great. But again, like if that was Mickey Rourke, like him facing down Val Kilmer just has so much more meaning to me than Michael Bean doing it. And it's like... Man, I just, I don't know. It kills me not to see these performances. And for some reason, 
the Tarantino thing in particular is strange to me because Tarantino is obviously a huge fan and he's tried to cast him many times. He was originally supposed to play Stuntman Mike in Death Proof. And I was so excited. Would have knocked it out of the park. And I remembered seeing the poster. And there literally was a poster made, which I don't know if you'd be able to find, but it literally had Mickey Rourke in like the title role. And then something went down. I guess they had some kind of falling out, and he ended up dropping out. Again, Kurt Russell's amazing in that movie. And, of course, it started this fruitful relationship between Kurt Russell and Quentin that kind of resurrected Kurt Russell's career. So all good. But, yeah, it's crazy to me that he didn't do Death Proof because then a lot of the stuff he does instead is trash. Well, and so Tarantino's <laughs> made a, a career out of resurrecting his hero's careers. Right, right. And the, in talk, he's the perfect director to help dust off and resurrect an aging badass like Mickey Rourke. Yeah, and I think he got what was great about him. Apparently, in Glorious Bastards, when he first conceived it, he had Mickey Rourke in mind when he wrote the Brad Pitt role. The Obviously, rain, by the time yeah. they made it. He, uh, you know, Mickey had out, uh, aged out of it. But when you watch that movie, you can clearly see like, oh, I can easily see how yeah, he's this, writing in the 90s. Yeah. So. If it came out in 93, it would have been like a great Mickey Rourke role or whatever. He also was one of the few uh, amazing actors to get cut out of uh, Thin Red Line, yep. Terrence Malick's movie, uh, which he to this day says like was one of his great performances and it's lost forever. There's a little few seconds of it on the criterion that you can see, but unfortunately like that was never realized um and so for me yeah it's pretty much little cameos little things like the rainmaker where it's like he's still working and then sin city it was really when things kind of came back into focus for me gold is dead i've been framed for murder and the cops are in on it Open up. Leave. I'll be right out. Looking for Nancy Callahan? As to the stage, Pilgrim. She's just warming up. Made a terrible mistake. We need to get out of here. Break this second. This clown's out of control. I followed him here to make sure he didn't hurt any of the girls. Helpless little girls. It's time to prove to your friends that you're worth a damn. Sometimes that means dying. Sometimes that means killing a whole lot of people. Steals the movie. It's a wild flick, and it's so it's one of the best visual representations of the experience of reading a kick-ass black and white, wild, over-the-top comic. And Frank Miller in the '90s was just cranking out these Sin City stories. And I mean, I'm a comic book just junkie, and Sin City was a fucking event when it came out. Yeah. The cast, the music, the look. To this day, rather than making movies more like comics, they try to make these comic book like the comic book material more like mainstream entertainment. Right. And I feel like. 
movies more often than not, take the rough edges and the weirdness of comics, shaves it off, makes it digestible to the public. But with Sin City, like, no, we're going to basically shove the graphic novel into a digital camera and do the best we can to do a complete total recreation of the comic book experience. It's like, to like shot by shot recreations like with McMickey Rourke driving and like dragging that guy in the street it's like I don't know about you but I'm having a ball right. like that is a panel like a direct copy of the panel from the comic and it never really been done before but he brought a humor that was uh-huh. missing from the comic he just his face Mickey Rourke just he brought something extra special <laughs> to that character of Marv and it's just a beautiful thing to behold. And I, 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 I applaud him for just completely hitting a home run with that character. Yeah, it's so much fun. And I, I remember, I think some critics at the time, obviously derisively, but they're not wrong, was sort of pointed out to your point about the face that it was sort of finally a role had sort of caught up with all the sort of terrible plastic surgery that he'd had over the years. And so he could kind of own it more. I mean, obviously half his face is covered in bandages. Yeah. And he's wearing a lot of prosthetics to like exaggerate, but essentially at that point he was starting to look cartoonish already. Um, And, but that being said, he plays it like very committed, very straight. It's a very like emotionally invested performance. You, you, uh, you know, part of the plot is that um, he's sort of had this one night stand with this woman and he wakes up and she's been killed and, you know, he's basically been this guy that women don't want to have anything to do with. And so he essentially has fallen in love with this woman that he's had one beautiful night with. Um, and he sells you on that. It's like this very romantic kind of, you know, 1940s kind of a thing. And he has the voice and the presence to sort of deliver that kind of dialogue. And there's other like great performances in that movie. And Carlo Gugino is really cool in yeah, it. Yeah, there's other tough guys. Like Bruce Willis is like a tough guy in it. And you got Clive Owen doing tough guy stuff. But well, it's like... What's that expression you used to describe Marv? He's like, like 2,000 years ago. Like they would have like thrown thrown him girls like this <laughs> like for killing guys with a battle axe. Yeah, he would have been a caveman. And it's like... And you and it's, it's true. I mean, one of my favorite parts, I remember when I saw it in theaters, I just howled is when... The, he gets executed and they they fry him done work there's, there's yeah. like a yeah there's like a pause and then he was just like is that the best you can do and he like spits out some blood and i just remember thinking like this guy is still got it and i remember being so excited to see like what his next big thing was going to be because he definitely got a lot of great press out of that movie and and there just wasn't there wasn't much there was like a little tony scott performance here or there what did he pop up in Domino? What did he pop up? Domino, and then he was in uh, Once Upon a Time in America, Mexico, like yep. holding a, a Chihuahua, pretty much. That's my memory of his performance in that. Uh, and I don't think anybody was prepared for the wrestler. I didn't. I didn't see it coming. I remember hearing kind of drips and drabs that that this was this amazing performance that was really kind of like a career capper for him. Um, and I just. I was like excited, but I didn't know what to expect. And then when, cause of course the original photos I saw from it, I was like, this looks bizarre. He's got long, like uh, peroxided curly hair. Like I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know it was going to be this like incredibly emotional, almost like a, like a modern Rocky story, and a but conf- even more tragic. Very confessional way. for Rourke as an actor. It's like, I'm an old, like an old, broken down piece of meat but right. I just don't want you to hate me it's almost like he's like coming to terms with the 20 years of human wreckage he's left behind him in his own life yeah that's one of my favorite monologues ever and I just I, I whenever I see that scene I'm always moved by it I, I thought it was such a special movie and a special performance and you know I think I think Sean Penn is is fantastic in Milk it's not that that performance wasn't worthy but I just thought that the the Mickey Rourke performance was more compelling and more kind of uh 
it just stood out more than any other the other well, it's great cinema and 50 years from now people will still be watching yeah. the wrestler whereas the milk is one of a classic example where if you check off certain boxes politically there's a very good chance you're walking home with the statue and milk right. for the time was one of those big there's a lot of political momentum behind it that people got really fired up about but it's just a raw piece of visual storytelling right. with like a melodramatic acting and beautiful emotion the wrestlers are like a movie movie yeah and i think part of it i mean i think he would even acknowledge this is that he had clearly pissed off a lot of people in the industry i mean even him getting a nomination was like probably a big deal and a Did shock to make it nominated she was yeah uh she's but so good in it yeah well. she's amazing in it and i think uh you know this came up with bill murray when he was nominated where he had kind of you know pissed off a lot of people Again, uh, you know, ironically, Sean Penn won that year, uh, but I was pulling for Bill. Uh, you know, when Stallone didn't win for Creed, I felt like it was a similar thing of like they didn't want to give the Oscar to this guy, you know, because of all of the other things going on and not just judging the performance on its own merits. If you judge that performance on its own merits, it should win. But I think people got hung up on, well, can we really give Mickey Rourke an Oscar? He's such a like... You know, yeah, the Oscars are about narratives as opposed to art and pretty much always have been. And it's like if you look at the history of the Oscars, it's a pretty weak collection of movies. I mean, it's right. like I, I would I would love it if the Oscar represented the best the cinema has to offer. But when you look at like the Oscars from the late 20s up to today and you sure. say you just wanted to watch the best picture winners, you would have like the smallest, most fragile understanding of the best that film history yeah. has to offer. It's and, about fifty percent misses, I would say. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, and just these, <laughs> like, and also when you people like, if, uh, I love doing this. Like a couple months after the Oscars, is saying, "All right, who won Best Actor?" And people are like, <gasps> "They can't remember." And like, who won what? What? What, what won Best Picture? And they're like, <gasps> and you realize just how little it means after like building up seems like everything and immediately after the Oscars and people flush it they forget about it yeah and it's just like the, in terms of cult, uh, lingering cultural relevance like Marissa Tomei she won the Oscar for my cousin Vinny right and it almost kind of derailed her career in a lot of ways yeah 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 and this was like a big comeback for her too and it's so not hot. like any other I mean I guess well I know when Black Swan came out people felt like there was some like parallels two years there. after but there it was originally the same yeah. script it was oh, the that's wrestler really and the ballerina yeah, yeah. having a relationship and finally he realized this is way overstuffed it's two movies yeah I always wanted I mean I I, I really love Black Swan I always thought it's it would killer. have been interesting if that Vincent Cassell role had been played by Mickey Rourke. Oh, I mean, um, obviously <laughs> Mickey Rourke is probably couldn't sell the idea of having been a dancer. And maybe after working with him, Darren Aronofsky was like, I'm one and done, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just remember at the time thinking like he would be really interesting in that role. I, again, Vincent Cassell's great, but yeah, that's, but that was Aronofsky in his yeah. prime. Those two movies back to back. I was like, God damn, you are on a hot streak right yeah, now. Yeah. He does like, he's so good at kind of, portraying um obsessive artistry creative types i mean obviously mother delves into some of that too um i always think of the wrestler when i think of two scenes the one where he's working behind the deli and it seems to be sort of an improvised moment where he's like waiting on different people and just kind of you know making little comments about their appearances and things and that is always just very funny to me and dealing with the woman who wants a little less right little right i mean uh, that scene is just like a pressure cooker and i love it and then when he finally has his meltdown and he gets in his car and he just starts talking about how like to himself like it's randy it's randy you know, it's not randy it's it's like you know, the Ram or whatever. Um, that moment to me, I always think of when I think of that movie and the monologue and obviously the ending, which is super heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, I just thought it was such an amazing piece of work. And I remember how much people were kind of 
understandably warming up to him during that period because he was such a lovable figure on the sort of awards circuit and he truly seemed to understand how significant it was that he had gotten this second chance. It was and like John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Like yeah, he, he was yeah. doing Look Who's Talking like dog movies prior to Pulp Fiction <laughs> and then Pulp Fiction gave him a second lease on life. Yeah. And he seemed to be sort of at a place where he was had gratitude about that. And so I thought, okay, he's going to start doing good work again. And I did. I wasn't mad about him doing, you know, Expendables and Iron Man two because it's like, yeah, make your money, yeah, cash in yeah. on like the fact. And it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy that he went from being kind of like a non entity in Hollywood to being like the main villain and like the biggest blockbuster of the the next couple years. Uh, but I kept thinking, okay, when's the next like legit role? And I remember the next thing I saw him in that was an attempt at that was, for me, a disaster of epic proportions, which is Passion Play. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I have not seen Passion Play. Okay, so it's a disaster. It's, like, unwatchable. It basically it's it has a great cast. It's, like, him, uh, Megan Fox is in it, and Bill Murray is in it. And it's made by Bill Murray's friend, uh, Mitch Glazer, who has sort of a mixed record in terms of movies. Um, and it's sort of like this weird thing where he, I, I barely remember it, but he's like a musician and she plays like an angel and he's being like hunted down by the mob or something, but it's a really bad, like almost unwatchable movie. And that was sort of like his big first play for like critical appreciation. Yeah, same year as The Expendables and same same year as Iron Man 2. Yeah, and I just remember like it was anticipated because it was like it's Bill Murray and Megan Fox and like, you know, she was very big at the time and it's Mickey Rourke's like first big drama after The Wrestler and then it just sunk like a stone. And then he did that movie Immortals, which I also missed, but at least made some money. I, I have not seen The Immortals, but I don't know if... You, Either you or I are missing anything. No, I doubt it. I mean, it was was clearly coming off of like the 300 wake of like, oh, we're doing like big epic, you know, battle movies again. Uh, But that that was literally the last role I remember him doing that he could even go on a talk show to promote. And then it just became like everything that I heard him doing was a DVD, directed DVD movie. Yeah. And he was starting. From that period onward, I've seen nothing yeah. except for a Sin City, a Dame to Kill for. Which I'm, I'm for looking me at this was list kind of and, underwhelming. Yeah. I mean. It, it was so weak. It was yeah. 10 years too late. They should have made they should have made Sin City in 2005 and made a Dame to Kill for like a year later. Yeah, or two years I agree. Later, it, I, I mean, going. obviously there's some really cool visuals and Eva Green looks amazing in it and everything. She's a goddess. But it's not. Yeah, I just I remembered watching it and feeling nothing. It it's just, so flat and yeah. unemotional compared to the first. I mean, the first one's not necessarily like a perfect film f- from start to finish, but the Marv sequence is just solid gold. Yeah, and the sequel lacks anything that's even remotely on that level. Yeah, and like I just I haven't heard him even like rumored to be in anything else. And I and again I don't know if people are just like they don't want to be bothered. I remember for years there was talk that he wanted to develop a, a biopic about this uh, like openly gay rugby player, which he was about 20 some years too old to be playing. But I remember thinking like, cool, like interesting choice, like a very different role for you. Obviously anything where he has to be physically committed, I'm, I'm open to it because it means he'll maybe be more all in. Cause you know, again, just referencing the wrestler, you know, even if you, you don't think much of that movie or you don't think it's for you, 
you have to acknowledge just like what an amazing physical performance it is. He was really doing those stunts. I took a date to see that and not realizing that she wasn't necessarily into scenes like the staple scene. Yeah, where yeah. I was like holding my shirt from my mouth about to vomit out. Cause, and I'm, I've seen many of fucked up movie, but I, this, the staple scene took me to, to that very horrible, uncomfortable place. And I was having right. with it. But she was just recoiling No, I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult, intense movie. And it's not, I mean, also because he was like older, you know, you can you feel the hits more when he's like doing these jumps and these these you know when he's getting chairs smashed over his head and falling from. La- I mean, and he really did that stuff. Um, he had to have like three MRIs, like he because he didn't yeah. learn how to fall as a young man. Whereas right. for the rest of these guys, they learn early on, like how to take a fall, how to do these things without killing yourself. He was, yeah, it's certain muscle memory he he totally lacked, and he was at an age where injuries are more pronounced. Yeah, and to the credit of his performance, I know a lot of like the big wrestling guys at the time, you know, gave him props. He was born for being in '52, so he was like <laughs> fit in his mid '50s doing that. Yeah, show. and like he got a lot of legit props from you know real wrestlers at the time for for doing their sport right and sort of showing a lot of the dark side of it too and the humanity of it and that these are a lot of these guys are you know working stiffs and people who you know are suffering obviously uh after they retire with all kinds of physical ailments which the movie doesn't shy away from um i don't know i i didn't want to believe and i don't want to believe that that's like the last kind of incredible performance he'll give i'm kind of under the impression that if he had one more performance like that that he could get back in the game we'll put on your producer hat <laughs> find what what's the right material what's the right director to give oh, mickey man, Rourke that's a tough a, a, one a good moment in the sun at this uh, uh, you know in 2019 that's 2020 a really tough one you know I mean, probably, well, I don't know. I do, you know who... He should have been in The Irishman. The Irishman would have been a movie. That would have been interesting. I I would think, this is like a weird out of my left brain thought, but I've always thought that Christopher Nolan is interesting with his casting choices. Obviously, in the leads, he's cast like pretty big contemporary movie stars, but every once in a while, he'll sneak like a random person in. Like, I remember when Inception came out, people were like, Tom Berenger and they're like all right and like I like Tom Berenger Tom Berenger's great but he wasn't doing anything at the moment he cooled off yeah for sure (laughs) but it was like oh it was like an interesting person to slide in there like Matthew Modine is a great actor uh he like snuck him into like Dark Knight Rises like just like these interesting little things I would just love to see him in a movie with a director of that caliber, even Quick if it's a small Dean, supporting role. shout out to Matthew because he's been nice to be on this podcast before, but he is running to be the new president of uh, SAG-AFTRA. Uh, oh, for uh, real? As of today. That's awesome. That's so funny. I actually got to work with him once uh, on a piece we did for Samantha B, and he was awesome. He was such a great guy, and we did a really great extended parody of Full Metal Jacket, and I remember we went out to dinner before. We talked all about Kubrick, and he had all sorts of amazing stories. He's an amazing guy. Uh, but yeah, no, I just, I think like, with him, for me, it's like baby steps. Like, I just want to see him in, like, a legit production. Well, he could be, like, an Ian McShane figure where he's, yes, like, old yes. and eccentric but really intense and really gnarly. But Ian McShane, he's working like a, like a madman. Yeah, he's he, got, like, know, American Gods do... and Deadwood and he's got yeah. all the things going on. He could have that kind of career. Now that you mention it, he could definitely pop up in a John Wick movie and I wouldn't be mad about oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? hell yeah. And he could be fun in it. I mean, again, I'm not expecting him to be, like, Pope of Greenwich Village good. I'm just saying, like, a good villain role. I mean, I'm, I know he can do that in his sleep if he's, like, properly motivated. It, unfortunately, I think it's going to have to take someone like a Darren Aronofsky to be like, I am invested in resurrecting this guy's career. And I'm going to ignore the, the hell of, the of dealing with him. Because it sounds like working with him is more trouble than it's worth at Yeah, times. And, I, and I think um, he... 
probably feels that he's been burned a few times and so he's probably got trust issues there um and at this point now it would be like his third or fourth attempt at kind of resurrecting this Sophia career coppola should cast him in something and have uh, her pop produce and then he would feel like he's back with like people he can trust and love and that's yeah I, I know like he w- you know when pressed will name check like a handful of people whose work he likes and respects and and our people unfortunately one of them was tony scott who's in, who's gone now but um, yeah, I think that sometimes can go a long way. I know with Brando, like there was like a handful of people that even towards the end, he was like, fine, you know, I, I respect these people. Um, and again, like Brando was such a talent that I think it's worth overlooking some of the eccentricity. Uh, you know, Mickey Rourke, if you put a microphone in front of him, God knows like what he'll say about any particular thing. At Give any that particular man a moment. podcast. Yeah, but I do think um, in the right role, I mean, look, you know, somebody like... Um, Andrew Dice Clay uh, can surprise you and be like a pop very, up in a Woody Allen movie. And yeah, and like be a, give a very credible, affecting, emotional performance. And he's a guy that certainly, from like a mainstream Hollywood perspective, was left for dead. Then he pops up in like Star Is Born and almost steals that movie. So I, I think anything is possible. There's always sort of that one role that can make people take another look at a person. Uh, there are people who've made comebacks that I just can't even imagine. I mean, it's funny, even watching the the Avengers movie, I thought Robert Denny Jr. was literally a punchline on late night shows. Uninsurable. Uninsurable, (laughs) couldn't, like, in and out of rehab, literally getting beaten up in prison. Yeah, waking up in strangers' beds. Yeah, and and it's like, he is one of our most beloved, reliable movie stars right now. Um, And totally well-earned, like, he's great, but it's like, surreal to me that in just 10 years he's gone from being like persona non grata to to being what he is and and obviously you look at somebody like mel gibson you know 20 years ago he was like a romantic lead and and he's obviously his trajectory has changed considerably but um, he's directing movies yeah. and he's doing a, a i mean the wild bunch is on my wall he's directing a remake of the wild bunch so it's and like nobody is completely I, I would like to believe nobody's completely beyond redemption and mickey work you know the talent's still there. You know the yeah. fire's still there. You know the demons are still there. It just you need a really dynamic, brilliant director who can harness and focus and channel all that madness in the proper role. And Hollywood, sadly, doesn't make the movies that exploit those kind of talents beautifully. I mean, granted, he was in Iron Man 2. He's been in a Marvel movie. But yeah. even there, it just felt like a caricature. Right. Hollywood's kind of lost interest in making dangerous movies. I guess, like, who are those guys who did uh, Good Time? Uh, with Robert? Oh, the Safdie brothers. Yeah, yeah like, that like, would, like young that filmmakers like that yeah, could do yeah. something cool with him. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting if somebody who saw him in The Wrestler, and in a weird way, because that's now a 10-year-old movie, but grew up with that to some extent and understood the greatness of that film and was like, oh, you know what? I'd like to bring him in as like such and such as weird uncle or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think he could totally fit into one of these kind of, I mean, obviously he has to own his appearance. He obviously has to own kind of his like unusual energy, but like some of these late career roles that uh, Christopher Walken has played, which I know uh, for him was, that was his big idol was Christopher Walken. Uh, and that's the, oddly enough, the character he plays against uh, in Heaven's Gate, like his first sort of big thing. Uh, but yeah, I think that there's something there. I could totally see him popping up and delivering a monologue like the the watch monologue from Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just I wish that he would would kind of stop taking these paychecks because I think 
every time I see one of these like awful, awful looking direct to DVD things, I just think like he is completely squandering whatever goodwill he has. Wait, you um, didn't want to see Nightwalk? <laughs> I don't even know some of the titles. I will say you want to see Tiger in a few weeks. I'm going <laughs> to be. A I'm going to be. I have to watch it first, but I'm going to be introducing one of his most like infamous movies, uh, Double Team, the uh, John Claude Van Damme, Dennis Rodman oh, <laughs> picture. Oh, gotcha! Very nice. Uh, I, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with it, but um, part of the reason I wanted to do that one is because he's the bad guy in it, and I thought that's such a crazy thing that he was in that movie. And then I think 11 years later was not nearly as crazy the fact that Dennis Rodman's in that. Movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess what, I, what I'm thinking is more of like an actor of his caliber is playing like the villain in a in that movie. But yeah, I mean it's wild, and it was such a funny snapshot in time where. Hollywood was like, oh, let's like make Dennis Rodman a thing. Let's cash I mean, in on the Shaq Dennis Rodman. I mean, Shaq was in one of the first like big, I mean, not big, was in one of the only DC movies of that era. Apart yeah, from Batman, yeah. they weren't making DC Steel, movies, but he yeah. did Steel. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't watched it Jordan was doing Space Jam. I mean, basketball yeah, players were popping up on flicks. <laughs> the Netflix is sitting on my, my shelf like collecting dust, but I have to watch it so I can introduce it. Um, and I'm very, inter- I'm very excited because the trailer alone um, was so insanely bad. I can't imagine the movie couldn't be any more exciting but what's dice from 2016 i'm seeing andrew dice clay <laughs> I, and mickey Rourke together oh on that was like his uh, andrew dice clay had a tv show i think on showtime uh, gotcha. right i think he plays some kind of like a facsimile of himself it's sort of like his version of louis i don't even know if it's still running uh but yeah i mean there's like you know stuff like uh yeah man on fire like uh i, I don't even think i saw yeah, I don't think I've seen any of these other things that were direct-to-video. Well, um, give that man a TV show, because I feel like HBO, they should just... Yeah, like have get, him show up in an yeah. HBO show, Westworld, have him be like a crazy cowboy who shoots a bunch Hell of people. Yeah. It would be cool. I would have loved that. You know, I mean, it doesn't even need to be... Because he obviously has such a presence that he doesn't have to say much. Like, if he shows up, people are like... He's one of those scary old dudes, like... Mickey Rourke is in it. I was just watching a Casting documentary. like a Gran Torino type movie. Like, yeah, I was just watching a documentary about uh, a boxer the other day, and he popped up as like a random interview subject because he just is like friends with the guy, and so that he was talking about his boxing skill. And he's like still a f- scary, formidable-looking dude. Like, I wouldn't want to run afoul of Mickey Rourke on the streets of New York, you know? So I feel like he's com- totally plausible as, as like the heavy in some of these movies. If you can have like old ass Liam Neeson going around karate chopping people. And that's what's and amazing is that you can be 70 it. and yeah. have a, a career as an action star. So yeah, Mickey Rourke, he is, he's untapped potential right now. <laughs> in theory. I yeah. mean, again, like I'm not holding my breath. I check his IMDb all the time for like something that seems legit. Get him and Kim A. Singer back for a sequel to Nine and a Half or Weeks. Or something. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's just to me, it just seems like there's all these young directors who admire the filmmakers that he's worked with. I'm sure they've seen the work again. Maybe his reputation is even worse than I imagine it is. Uh, and that certainly matters. I mean, there's a reason like, you know, Tom Hanks has worked as long as he has, because apparently he is genuinely like the nicest guy in Hollywood and like more power to him. You know, being nice goes a long way. Yeah. And being difficult, I mean, look at like Lindsay Lohan. As soon as people know that you're a pain right. in the ass and you're going to cause scheduling delays, budget overruns, drama, just any sort of ca- like making a movie fucking sucks. It's awful right. work. And if somebody's going to make things even more difficult, like, you know what? Life's too short. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, a lot of, I mean, this is a whole nother tangent to go down, but a lot of like the actors and comedians that I, I've admired and loved are not 
the best people, you know? <laughs> and it, this is aside from politics. They, they, no, but it's know. like, but great artists aren't necessarily wonderful human beings. Like yeah. great novelists, great musicians. I'm sure like Mozart was fucking awful to be around. Yeah. But he, but he left behind yeah. a great body I mean, of work. I, yeah, I'll be willing to admit, I mean, there's a lot of Mickey Rourke quotes that make me grimace and wins and I strongly disagree with, but. Well, he um, says, I know he was all in on uh, like Vladimir Putin for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was palling around with Putin. It was sort of like that weird Steven Seagal thing of like, I don't know how much it was like him being taken in by just like the wealth and the power or if he genuinely likes Putin. Or like I don't when really Dennis know. Rodman was hanging out in North Korea for a while, you're like, yeah. what? Yeah, are it's like doing? really <laughs> stepping out of their lane quite a bit. And uh, yeah, he's been sort of all over the map with that. And he's sort of always been that way. He's always been kind of a strange duck in terms of like his politics. Um, he certainly has a lot of retrograde views about, you know, women and things like that that are not great. Uh, I just enjoy him as a performer. I think uh, he definitely is one of the more dynamic actors of the 80s. The 80s has a lot of like amazing movie stars. You know, I think of people like, and I, and they, they're great actors too, but I like people like Tom Cruise and Eddie Murphy and Harrison Ford and folks like that. So like there's chock full of that in the 80s, but he's one of the few people who's still doing kind of the method thing. And uh, it's like a lost start. an early 70s actor acting, Oh yeah, acting totally, of a different time. And yeah. I feel like he would have been at home and like, Serpico and all those sort of movies like from Sam the Peckinpah 70s. films yeah, and things for like sure. that. Cast him in like Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Oh yeah, or yeah, or Cassavetti's movie he yeah. would be great in. And uh yeah, I feel like he is sort of the end of a sort of lost art. I don't even know who's you know, I know like when he first got going, like I felt like Ryan Gosling was sort of a little bit in that space. I think now he's become more of like a mainstream actor, but you know, like his performance in Drive is something I could have seen Mickey Rourke doing when he was younger. Like every once in a while, like an actor comes out who kind of reminds me of that energy where they're doing like, actually, it's funny you brought up uh, the the Safety brothers because I had never seen a Robert Pattinson movie until I saw Good Time. I just yeah, that's a good one to start with. Yeah, I wasn't. I, I mean, like, obviously, I, I'm not the target audience for the Twilight movies. It didn't interest me. I, I didn't I missed the Cronenberg one he did. Yeah, Cosmopolis uh, and uh, Map to the Stars. Yeah. And so I saw that and was like. Well, he's great. Like that's like an amazing performance. And he's in the nuclear knee movie, right? Which yeah. I've seen, just seen, and he's good in that too. And and like he's like become weirdly enough like one of the more interesting guys out there right now. We took um, like the Johnny Depp route. He landed like as the big beautiful teen starlet, and then immediately shifted sideways into trying to find the most interesting directors of his generation to try to work with. Yeah, I think like there's always been this kind of search for like who's the next this right like uh i know for a long time people have been trying to find the next denzel the next tom hanks and like people have stepped up and then not quite done it right so like it's funny you brought up shia labeouf because i remember at his height there was a lot of people trying to say he was going to be the next tom hanks and it was like <sighs> i fucking laughable shia you know it's laughable but you know it's like i guess i could see why people thought maybe but it obviously didn't pan out um it, yeah there's not a lot of like classic quote-unquote man's man movie stars which might be why so many of these guys keep getting like pulled out of mothballs like let's do another rambo let's do another because it's like at least like there's a reliability to what they're bringing to the table i mean denzel washington's almost 70 and he's yeah. still doing equalizer movies he's one of the last ones i yeah. feel like of that genre i mean obviously tom cruise is like on another level <laughs> 59 years old and yeah. still jumping off buildings he, he's on another i mean and like to me that like him and the Mission Impossible movies are now one, and I feel like that's. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like that's all that he should do. I like Tom Cruise a lot, actually, but I think he just should. But no take more a weird sci-fi movies. Yeah, yeah, just, he should just take like 
recoup because I'm sure he's like physically drained. Like, you know, do take whatever he takes to do those stunts because I'm sure he's getting some kind of aid. He's got that weird like Scientology injection. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there, it's like the, that kind of like, you know, uh, big male movie star is sort of dying out. And maybe it's just the industry is much more interested like, in even brands. Even like Leo and, and Brad Pitt are old as hell. They're like, you know, Brad Pitt's what, early 50s? Leo's yeah. like mid 40s? Like when you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm like, wow, these guys were movie stars 20, 25 years ago. And it's, I guess now it's all about like, who's the movie star? Is it Thor or Chris Hemsworth? And you know, <laughs> Chris Hemsworth disappears in anything where he's not Thor. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think he maybe just needs the right role. So I, I'm, I like him a lot. And I think, especially in this new Avengers movie. Oh my God, he's hysterical. He's clearly found, yeah, he's clearly found that he is this like, kind of unconventional comedic actor like he's very funny and like i don't think mm, I, he looks like he should just be a male model yeah but somehow he's very clever and and by the way like that that's awesome when that ha- i mean it's sort of like kind of what happened with alec baldwin where it was like i think just over time people were like alec baldwin's funny like who who knew like you know because i think he was just so handsome and so like traditional leading man for so long and then and he was doing this glenn gary glenn ross kind of like mean guy performances and things like that and i think now it's like people have to be reminded oh there was a time where he was like a serious actor um you know it's yeah it's funny how that stuff happens but um yeah i do think like the product is now bigger than the actor and you know when you when i try to recommend these movies it's like he's the reason the movies are worth seeing it's they're not movies that um, are big necessarily on plot or they're not big commercial entities. I mean, if he had done The Untouchables for sure, that would have been The Untouchables and he would have been in it. Uh, but yeah, he's the show. It's like, you know, anyway, uh, I think uh, the stuff we've talked about here is, is plenty and a lot of actors It's a great jumping off point. Now, I was thrilled, thrilled beyond words but, when you yeah. made this pitch. I knew it would be a ton of fun because I hadn't seen a lot of these movies in forever. Ever and yeah, I, I love it when uh, preparation for an episode gets me all excited about movies all over again. And this awesome. this episode definitely made me feel the uh, the old love coming back in surges. But uh, before we totally bring this in for a safe landing, once again, where can people find your website? Where can people find your social media? Just where where can people hunt down Adam Howard to shoot the shit about flicks? Uh, yeah, and by the way, thanks again for letting me do it. It's it's great to be able awesome. to do this stuff. A- anytime we will uh, roll out the red carpet. Yeah, I'm sort of with my friends. They kind of treat me like a walking IMDb, and and I often don't get to get more into the. Well, weeds let's with find this stuff. someone that you want to record with, like like a filmmaker, like Jeremy Workman, or something yeah, like that, yeah. like so we can get a little like a little roundtable situation going. That yeah, be for fun. sure. Uh, but yeah, so at Twitter, uh, I'm I'm not on there much, but when I am on there, it's at at underscore Howard. Um, I have a website with all of my writing, all of the stuff I produce for television and all my artwork. It's the adamhowardproject.com. So I would send you to those. And then uh, if you are interested in uh, what I do for a living, you can tune into the Samantha V show it airs Wednesdays at 1030 on TBS. And yeah, that's it. Um, and just thanks for listening. Excellent. Well, we hope you all have had a blast with this episode. Definitely hunt down these movies. You really can't go wrong with any of them. And if you happen to see something along the lines of weaponized or blunt force trauma or war pigs and they're great, let me know. <laughs> I'm always in the mood to see some more Mickey Rourke flicks. But please leave us a rating review on iTunes. If you want to see some video content, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. We just passed the uh, 14,000 subscriber marks. I'm very excited about that. And you can also find me on Twitter always at Colbrex. But thanks again for listening. Greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. 
It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. 